does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. I'd forgotten uh, how liberating it is to walk around in Speedos, flip-flops. Man, I'll tell you what, walked outside today and I'm like, let's go. Spring break, baby. That's going to be a drop now. I know. it's We're back to life here soon, right? Did I miss something? Did you misspeak on the first part or were you including Speedos and flip-flops in the same category of like, man, it's glad to have that season back? Did I Did I miss that? No, what do you mean? I'm saying it's like 55 degrees outside. It feels like it, 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 it's a joke, meaning that it's right. warm outside, right? All right, I got it now. Thank you. But, Eddie, we're back to life soon, right? That's right. When When is it? When, when do we go back to? You just made the comment. It's about to drop back down again, right? Oh, no. I said that's going to be a drop. You saying that it's nice to walk <laughs> it's around. Gonna be a commercial, he's going to be a commercial drop. Oh, a drop. Uh, but Monday. Sorry, I'm not hip to the high of 38. lingo with so, the kids. Not- I thought you you said it's it's about to drop because I think oh, it's no. supposed to we're, like it's like a let's just start just start the let's go back to <laughs> let's let's have a little meeting here Eddie go ahead and play the uh, the opening music again if you could we're just gonna start the whole thing over again here it's Query and Company I'm gonna be keeping you company for the next few hours you are not gonna believe the company this company you're gonna bankrupt your mama's company at least I have the radio to keep me company on ninety three five and one zero seven five the fan. Man, I'll tell you what, if you didn't know any better, you'd think it's spring break outside. Yeah, I was doing my best Jason Kelsey impression when I got out of the Holy bed cow. Today. I mean, I like walked outside mid-50s. It feels like spring breakout, doesn't it? Yeah. Went shirtless. It was crazy. It was now, awesome. Eddie Garrison, I don't know if you've checked. Do you know whether or not this is supposed to stick around for a while? Are we out of the woods, or is it supposed to get cold again? Uh, I think it's going to get into the 30s again, but I don't think it's going to be back down to the frigid temps that it was last week. Well, that's nice. Now, see, that's we need to, now, guys. We need to have a meeting here because we got to button things down now, right? Yep. Like we got to really flex the company muscle here. Yep. So we got to make sure we're on the same page. So mu- much better the second guy, time around by me there. Um, good afternoon to you on a Wednesday. It is Wednesday, correct? Yep. You are right. Today is Wednesday. My name is Jake Quarry, Jimmy Cook, and Eddie Garrison. The other two voices you hear in this program. It's Quarry and Company on 93.5, 107.5. The fan. Lot to talk about today. Last night, Purdue, really impressive. Man, Michigan is just so – and I mean this as no knock on Purdue at all, what they were able to do because we know how good Purdue is. I'm just – I'm stunned how bad Michigan is as well. But Purdue makes a lot of teams look bad, granted. Easiest 17 and a half you'll ever lay. What was the – did they go over the 85? They did, didn't they? Yes, they did. They, yeah. went, over, they went over the total. Eddie too. said, don't touch that. I was That's a lot of points. I, I was with you there. Uh, Pacers last night, I thought an entertaining game with Denver – We'll go over it over the course of today. In the end, how do you let Jokic that open? But pretty big news from the Pacers just before we go on today. Rick Fusen, who joined the Pacers in 1984 to help manage the All-Star game that took place in 1985. That All-Star game, by the way, was played in the Hoosier Dome. The festivities leading up to it were done at Market Square Arena. Ralph Sampson was the most valuable player of that All-Star game. And now, with the All-Star Game set to return to Indianapolis here in just a couple of weeks, Rick Fusen announcing today that in mid-June, he will be done as the CEO 
of the Indiana Pacers and Pacers Sports and Entertainment, Mel Raines, who is the president and chief operating officer of Pacers Sports and Entertainment, uh, will be promoted to CEO of all aspects of it. Although it says, Mel Raines, the president and chief operating officer of Pacers Sports and Entertainment, will be promoted to CEO. Isn't that chief? Oh, chief operating officer. So now chief executive officer. So at any rate, uh, Mel Raines will take over the reins, pardon the pun, in mid-June. So Rick Fusen, who has worked a very long time with the Pacers, uh, done, but not a huge seismic shift because he will stay on as an advisor to Herb Simon. Pretty cool to go from, at least Dustin Dupirak has a great story about this on IndyStar.com, but to go from being brought in initially with the Pacers to set up the 85 All-Star game, and then I know it's not till mid-June when he's actually going to hang it up, but to have this kind of culminate in the second go-round for the 2024 NBA All-Star Game is a really unique aspect of that. I mean, I know it's tough for anybody to make a decision to step aside or hang it up or enjoy retirement or leave an entity, but for you to be a part of two of the biggest events that have been tied to the Pacers outside of the finals, pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, and you know, that it's interesting to me with the All-Star Game, The, I think we're going to start to hear more about it now that we're within like 23 days, I think it is. I mean, obviously the airport has the full court basketball court and that sort of thing, but I'll be honest, I haven't heard as much about like auxiliary activities. I think people are super excited about what's going on downtown, but and there are going to be a lot of parties and things like that, but I, maybe it's just me, guys. I haven't started to hear that sort of, not like when the Super Bowl was here, and I know it's not the Super Bowl, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for there to be a zip line on Georgia Street, right, or wherever that was. By the convention center, and I don't think did that's you do happening. the zipline? I did not. It's the Eddie, only thing did I do didn't it? do that I regret. From that I was week. like ten or eleven or twelve. I can't remember how old I was, so no, I did not. That's the peak, did you? That's the peak age for doing a zipline, right? I don't know. You'd have to ask my parents. Um, <laughs> did you? I did. And you know, have you done a zipline anywhere? Yes. Yes, but no, no, I have not. I the, have in uh, Tennessee. Okay, so I d- I've also done it in. Uh, also, yeah, Tennessee, I did it in Chattanooga, right? And and I'll tell you the funny thing about ziplining. And I've gone skydiving, so you would think that this would be like no big thing, right? I don't know about you, Jimmy, but like you start out, you get strapped in. It, it's kind of, you feel like you need to like hold on tight to the, you know, like you sure. forget that you kind of can just let yourself go. But it's like the first push off is like terrifying because you feel like you're going to drop straight down. It's a very, I don't know about you, but like my body almost yeah. freezes. Yeah, it's, it takes that because where we did it, I can't remember where it was in Tennessee, but we were like, we had like a cabin that we went to. I can't remember exactly where it was. So not to derail the story, but that first one, because it's usually where we did it, it was in a foresty area. So there were different jump off points. So you'd zip line to one area and then zip line again and again. That first one, you're right. It's fear and anxiety. And then when you realize, oh, it's got to hold on to this thing. And I'm safely secured and fastened in. Let's have fun with it. But yes, the first sensation, it's very hard to describe, but it is fear of, is this thing going to hold me? And then you realize, oh no, you're good. It's fine. The, um, just held my dad. The one on Georgia's, actually it was on Capitol, I think, right? Capitol and Georgia, basically. Mm -hmm. The, the one before the, the Super Bowl, it was, you know, it was very similar to today. And I think there is the hope that this is what it's going to be like for the All Star game, that we're going to get this Mother Nature freak event again. But the Super Bowl, I remember going out and doing the zip line. I think it was on the morning of the game itself. And, I mean, it was like 60 degrees and sunny outside, and it's February. I mean, it was unbelievable, right? Um, Is there a less sense of pressure 
in like not that the Indianapolis does a fantastic job. It's five star whenever they have an event here. But I feel like there was so much pressure with the Super Bowl to make sure it was right to leave a lasting impression. Like even if they do perfect based on the NBA's rotation history, you're probably looking at 40 years either way before it's back, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. That well, said, we we want good weather. I'm not trying to ask. Here's the thing: else, taking but. nothing away from the All Star Game, which is huge, and it's going to be a great event, and, and it is a it, it certainly spotlights the city, no doubt about it. But not like the Super Bowl because right. the Super Bowl, the difference between the Super Bowl and the NBA All Star Game, the NBA All Star Game is a showcase event for fans of the NBA. The Super Bowl is a showcase event for fans of the United States. I mean, the Super Bowl is probably the biggest. It's the closest non-Olympic event that you're going to host. Yeah. Well, probably the World Cup, too, but that's a conversation for another day. Which, and before we get to the Pacers last night, this leads to my one other topic that I've said forever, Jimmy, and people think that I'm crazy when I say it, okay? Way down the road, I realize. But Rome wasn't built in a day, right? It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. I have always said that the footprint is here for Indianapolis to start. And when I become mayor, this is going to be a major platform. Once we get all the scooters are going in the canal and then the pedal bar dealios are going in white river. Right. Yep. And, and then once we get that taken care of, you know, then we're going to go to my next project, which is going to be union station is going to become the largest sports book casino in the Midwest, which is then going to fund a light rail system. That's going to connect all aspects and angles of the city with the surplus going to IPS. And, and then after all of that, then I'm going to have the announcement to the world that the city of Indianapolis, which was originally some 40-plus years ago, its next step as a city itself was completely based on being the amateur sports capital of the world by hosting the 1982 National Sports Festival, by hosting the 1987 Pan American Games, by becoming a place that was the U.S. swimming and diving trials and track and field trials and the home for United States gymnastics and other such entities and the Pan Am Plaza and all of that, okay? We as a city elevated our profile nationally by using amateur sports, and then that parlayed into building the RCA Dome, getting an NBA team, or getting an NFL team, excuse me, et cetera. Between the natatorium, the natatorium, and I know that 50 years from now, a lot of these are going to be renovated, updated, replaced, whatever. You're going to be but, on like the third half century of your life at that point. That That's is incredible. The, the, but you have to start laying the foundation, correct, correct, yes. right? Rome was built day, yep. Between the natatorium, between Carroll Stadium, uh, apparently now if we're, if we're going to spend $4.5 billion for a, a double-A soccer team and, and a huge complex there, Lucas Oil Stadium, Eagle Creek State Park, which has, or if it's Eagle Creek Park, I guess I should say, but you know they have the NCAA rowing championships that are there. You have Geist Reservoir that can be used for events. And now the Olympics is not a specific design city, but a region. So you can incorporate Louisville, West Lafayette, Bloomington, and even probably part of the south of Chicago. It is time to start envisioning 50 years down the road, Indianapolis trying to make a pitch to be Atlanta and host a Summer Olympics. And I know that that sounds crazy, but it doesn't sound any more crazy than it would have been in 1950 to suggest that in 1996, Atlanta be the home for the Summer Olympics. I would settle for 
not that I don't want to be a big dreamer like you, I would settle for just being like you mentioned, one of the regional sites for things like all the finals don't necessarily have to be here. But to your point about cities being involved in the bid process, like you look at the World Cup coming in 2026, Kansas City is going to host a World Cup match. So is, uh, I think, the D.C. area. I can't remember where all the sites are. They're doing one in Houston and Dallas. You'd want Indianapolis I to be a part of that. In Indianapolis that submitted, did they not? I believe to be, so. I they, and they, they were did. eliminated very early yeah. in one of the first rounds after they had the friendly here a couple of years ago, and they said that Lucas Oil wasn't wide enough, I think it was, for the field. Of course, the fact you can't bring grass in probably is a bit of a detriment as well. Uh, last night, did you watch the Pacers against the Denver Nuggets? I did. There were several things in that game that jumped out at me. The first being this, Pascal Siakam. Um, Pascal Siakam is clearly a gifted player. He got out to a very good start early in the game. And then one thing that I noticed, and there's really nothing that you can say to be bothered by it, but it, it was very clear to me and I get it. I mean, I actually was thinking about this about midway through the game. I'm watching to my right and Siakam is on the low block and the and entry pass goes into him and he starts to back down a little bit and he's kind of looking around and you could tell that he was in a situation where he's like I, I, I don't know where the ball is supposed to go here Jimmy I don't know how many plays they have in the NBA I do know this I, I had a conversation once with George Hill now, would have been a different administration from a coaching standpoint, but I think for the most part, this is true in the NBA, okay? And Rick Carlisle, when he's on with KB and Andy, could probably better elaborate on this. But when George Hill was the point guard of the Pacers, he was telling me, the first go-round, I realize he played for Carlisle as well, but when he was here under, it would have been Frank Vogel. I think I've explained this before. I found it interesting. That when George Hill would come down the floor or whoever's bringing the ball down the floor, when they would call out a play, every play had an immediate alternate play. And every play had an immediate designed first entry pass. So if he comes down the floor and he calls out gold two, gold two, they all know that gold two, the alternate play is blue three. Sure, Gold two is designed to go into David West on the block. And if David West is doubled, then he goes to the next open recipient and every the other four players know that since David West did not get the ball, the play has now changed to blue three, okay? Those things take time clearly to develop and to learn and to become instinctual. There's no way that Pascal Siakam would know that kind of stuff or a variation of it to this point. So you are going with basically sandlot football on on hardwood. I mean, you're going with pickup basketball in terms of you haven't really even had time to incorporate for him what the offensive plays are, what the sets are, what to do. And you could see that. You could see two things last night in him. His natural ability to score or create shots for himself and his inability at this point to know what in the world everybody else is doing. And there would be no way that anybody would be able to know that. That I mean, I don't even know that they've had time to really go through a lot of those reps and everything that goes into it. That was the first thing that I observed last night. 
The second thing I observed was with four minutes and 50 seconds to go in the game. And this right now, to me, there are a lot of things about the Pacers right now that that can cause Jimmy one to be discouraged. Their star player is hurt. He's going to be out for two more games at minimum. They all of a sudden are kind of, they're on a banana peel a little bit. And they're in a log jam in the East and they're backpedaling a little bit in terms of a losing skid, etc. Okay. But here's one thing in this town that I think people can be the most encouraged by and, and should appreciate. With four minutes and 50 seconds left in the game, Eddie, do we happen to have, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, Eddie Garrison, do we happen to have Mark Boyle's call last night of the 45-second flurry involving Ben Shepard where literally it, the guy looked like a wind-up toy inside of one of those little metal basketball games. This is last night just inside of the five-minute mark in a very close game between Denver and Indiana and Mark Boyle on the Pacers radio network. Foul shot makes it 196. He's got 22. Second one coming is short. And the rebound slapped over to the side. Shepard tried to save it and did. Turner has it on top. Pacers down four. Nemhart right edge of the arc. Holds it. Looks outside. Turner back to Nemhart. A three on the way. Negative. Rebound free on the floor. Picked up by Neesmith. And as he went up the shot was denied and now the ball is loose in the backcourt but Murray has it comes across the timeline and Shepard picked his pocket drove in and scored later in the now when that happened the crowd went absolutely bananas and Ben Shepard lost his mind it was awesome he lost his mind and the crowd went crazy but the entire bench met him before he even got back to midcourt on the timeout before he shot the free throws. And then later he hit a three, and the crowd went bonkers for him. But the team itself, in the NBA today, there are plenty of examples, plenty of examples. You don't have to, you don't have to look very far to find examples of teams that are just lollygag, go through, and it's guys collecting a check. But in this market, Indiana University, what if people, when Don Fisher said his comments about embarrassment of Indiana basketball, IU fans rejoiced. And what did I say yesterday? They rejoiced because people in this state grow up dreaming about playing basketball for Indiana, at least people like my age and older. I realize it's changed a little bit now, and it's probably Purdue, Butler, whatever else. Things are a little bit different. But a lot of fans look at the privilege and the opportunity that student athletes have to to represent Indiana University and they are so dismayed and disappointed because at the very least what they want to know is the assurance that the people putting on that jersey understand the privilege of it and understand that they are representing the thousands and tens of thousands in this state that would have done anything for that chance and instead have to vicariously live through the kids that are putting that jersey on. And at the very least, they hope that those kids honor that privilege by playing hard and together. And that carries over to the NBA where people become disenfranchised because they feel like at the professional level, players in the NBA are collecting a huge paycheck and thus don't have heart and fire. And then you have a situation like last night where you're going against the defending world champions. You're doing it as a team that came off a 
swing where you're away from home. It didn't go well. You were two and four. Your star players hurt. And a guy that most were unfamiliar with that was drafted late in the first round who hasn't gotten a lot of opportunity, but Rick Carlisle said it with KB and Andy on the morning show. He, along with his fellow rookie, Jairus Walker, they've earned the right to be out there. Not not earned by the paycheck, but their practice habits have earned them the right to play. So he's out there late in the game in a key moment inside five minutes left, and he absolutely hustles his tail off on both ends, and that is one thing that fans can enjoy and appreciate, but more so what they enjoy and appreciate is the fact that the entire bench recognized it. And you are only as strong as your weakest link. And I'm not saying Ben Shepard is the weakest link, but in terms of minutes or rotation, he has been towards the bottom. And when he makes a play like that and the rest of the team comes out there in genuine joy for him and excitement for him, it's infectious. And now all of a sudden you see a guy on rookie minimum salary or rookie first round salary getting absolutely like high-fived and and praised up like a prayer for Owen Meany from guys making $20 million a year. And that's what fans want to see. But the other side of that, Jimmy, rookie mistakes. Late in the game, to be fair, it was Ben Shepard probably jumping over and instead of – Miles Turner slid off of Jokic because they had to help on Caldwell Pope and Ben Shepard probably missed a rotation there, and Jokic, who hit a huge three at the end of the half, hit another one basically to salt the game there in the final minute, and Jokic is an unbelievable player because he's lumbering. He's there's not, you, It's you a guy walk, at the Y. Like, like, totally. Like legitimately, not in terms of, to be clear, he's one of the best, if not the best player in the NBA right now, but his play style, if you just showed somebody highlights, especially those two triples in the fourth, it's hit with such a casual nature of, okay, I, I got to take another one of these. Okay. Right. No problem. Oh, it went in. Well, right, and he like, <laughs> he almost looks like he's lining it up and then like, it's like a rainbow, I you know, but I mean, the guy can clearly shoot. He just has a, he literally like, it's effortless inside of 10. But the thing about effort- Jokic too, also Jimmy, it's effortless in terms of emotion. Like, he had a lot of emotion. He and Ben Shepard, and that was another play that kind of turned the game was in the last couple of minutes. He and Ben Shepard, right after that flurry that we just played, Ben Shepard had, at the time, what was a foul on Jokic. They reviewed it and reversed the call. That was a major game-turner there. And Rick Carlisle had been ejected. Lloyd Pierce's operating things. Sure, you could make the argument that perhaps it would have been better to get a more veteran player in at that moment. I get that you're kind of riding the energy of Ben Shepard at that spot, but with all of that emotion flying around, Jokic showed a lot of emotion on begging for or asking for a review of that foul situation, but other than that, he's like robotic. You know how in the NBA Finals, when they hype it up and they show that intro video, never underestimate the heart of a champion, and like they play Magic Johnson, he's like, back to back, yeah, yeah, they have all these like great hyped up players that have won championships. My dream, Jake, your dream is the Olympics. My dream is a little bit smaller. My dream is for that highlight montage going into this year's finals is to end with the post-game interview they did with Nikola Jokic after they won the title, which is, the job is done. We can go home now. Totally. Because like, I mean, that, that's just who he is, to a T. Like, he, he enjoys playing basketball. He's very good at it. But 
He loves life a heck of a lot more than he does the game. And it really does feel like a job for him sometimes. That's cool because he's a cerebral assassin about it too. Just like he was last night. And by the way, I've talked about like star power and why it's not fully fair to judge the Pacers because this isn't their final form just yet with Tyrese being out. That entire final three minutes of buckets for the Nuggets, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic. Scored their final nine points. Yeah, I mean, that's the... And the abomination of that third quarter, but we have time to discuss that as the day goes on. Yeah, they um, they obviously had a great first half, and then in the third quarter, Denver came out and was like, okay, you know, let's get serious here. Uh, Purdue last night, I thought for Purdue, Jimmy, the great thing for the Boilers was the fact that they, they were in, it's fabulous the way they were able to do that without your typical 30 and 13 night from Zach Eady, right? Yeah, I mean, it shows, speaking of final forums, what Purdue is supposed to be this year, where they feel like they've grown the most is they don't have to just be solely self-reliant on the big fella in Zach Eady. Now, that said, he's likely to be a two-time national point of the year. It's nice to have him there. He's going to make the plays. But you would think that teams are going to try to be physical with him like they have in the past this year. They're going to try to dare Purdue to do things without just focusing solely on Zach Eady from an offensive standpoint. And it looks, again, like a team that is hitting their stride to where it's all business. There's not a worry about Michigan coming into town and people hyping out Juwan Howard and hyping up the Wolverines being a top offense and all this could be a trap game for Purdue. No, they just take care of business. They go on a nightly basis. You're never really going to question their effort. You're never going to question where they're at, at least in terms of this stretch of the season. They're going to get beat if someone's going to turn them over or if someone's going to outshoot them. And if they're going to outmuscle you and they're going to be as dominant as they have been, it's not as casual as Jokic, but it's to that same vein. And it's good to see Purdue at this stage not having little trip-ups or slip-ups, especially at home in Mackey. How about their ability to just shoot from the outside? Yeah. Can they send, like, one of those guys to Bloomington? Please? <laughs> We're not at midseason. Purdue, don't Purdue portal. fans hate that. I can hear it right now. <laughs> Purdue goes out and blows out Michigan, and they're the number two team in the country, and they're unbelievable, and Quarry's on the radio talking about how it relates to Indiana. Look, take it as a compliment, right? Take it as a compliment because one of them is so strong, and the other one just, mm. what are we doing? Right? Yeah. What are we doing? Uh, James Boyd going to join the program. Going to do it in just a couple of minutes here. We'll talk. Um, we might mix in a little bit of Illinois basketball with James, right? But no, we're going to talk primarily Colts. Rhett Lewis also 2 o'clock. We'll get uh, the latest on the NFL as we get set for the draft. Might ask him. Maybe we'll ask him a little bit about Kurt Signetti as well. That on the program today on a warm, tropical. I wish it was a little sunnier, but we'll take what we can get. A thaw out. How's that? It's a thaw out Wednesday of Quarry and Company here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Halfway through the 12 o'clock hour on a Wednesday, Jake Quarry along with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison here as well. Jimmy, are you starting to get nervous yet for the AFC title game? Yes. Oh, yeah. M- Monday, enjoy it all. And everybody's going to talk because, you know, I'm just a little flower over here, Jake. And everybody's going to talk glowingly about the Chiefs, but now we're in. Baltimore's a great team, and a lot of advanced rankings and, and even your basic rankings, they're viewed as one of the best defensive units in a long time, definitely the best this year. Uh, Kansas City has great defense, too, but yeah, there's there's nerves for sure. I'm going to ask James Boyd, who joins us now from The Athletic, uh, this question regarding the AFC title game or just the AFC playoffs in general. Uh, James, first off, appreciate the time. I'll, I'll start with this. When we look at the postseason – after a season of watching the Colts perform, do you find when you watch the teams that are still alive, 
that Indianapolis is really pretty close, or did it more illuminate areas where they have a lot of work to do? I think it's probably the latter for me, just because they weren't a playoff team. Obviously, it was a promising season. It was a good season, but I can't sit here and say, oh, they're so close to being you know, a contender or you know, a move here, move there away from winning two playoff games. I can't go that far, but it is a promising start to the Shane Steichen era. Obviously, Anthony Richardson's health has a lot to do with everything, but um, you know, no need to be a little overzealous so far. James, where do you view the balance of power right now in the AFC South when you look at Jacksonville crumbling down the stretch, Houston taking advantage of it, C.J. Stroud looking every bit as good as he was touted to be, even though there were doubters about what he would do in the NFL, and then the Colts to Anthony Richardson on a de facto rookie year. We'll leave the Titans out of it. Sorry about Will Levis. Anyway, uh, AFC South, where where do you view the balance of power there? I do think it belongs with the Titans. I'm sorry, not the Titans. The Texans. I'm, you have me messing up, My Jimmy. fault, my fault. But the Texans, I'm sorry, listeners out there, not the Titans. But the Texans, because of P.J. Stroud, I was convinced he was good after the Week 2 game. And then the Week 18 game, I was like, oh, he's a dude. And then I was talking the playoffs, and I was like, oh, he's really good. So I think they feel really good about their future. Obviously, you can't count out Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence. You want to see more from them if you're that franchise, but he did battle through a lot of injuries this past year, so I don't know if this is like a one-off for him. It's something that we have to keep an eye on as far as the injury history goes, but those two I think are still um, atop the leaderboard because they know what they have with their quarterback. I don't think Anthony Richardson can't get to that level. We just don't know, and the unknown for me kind of knocks him down a little bit. James, let's talk about the unknown real quick here. Um I've asked each, you know, it's a it's a slippery slope, but I've asked each Colts writer that we've had on about this subject because it's kind of the elephant in the room. Um, to your knowledge, what is the latest? I heard last night, you know, WTHR got a hold of the 911 call from Jim Mercer's residence from back in December. I did hear that last night. But in terms of his health or his status, is there any update? I don't have one for you. Obviously, I've been praying for Jim Irsay. I want the best for Jim Irsay. I will reiterate, though, that you know, having looked at the police documents and reports from the December 8th suspected overdose, everything in the household was prescription drugs. I know people just kind of jump to conclusions and say, oh, well, it could have been this, could have been that. You know, we don't know what may have caused this, you know, if it was an addiction or if it was just a mistake. So I would just say before you jump to conclusions and you – you know, especially the best off their past, you just keep in mind that you don't know everything. We don't know everything. And so the plan for Jim Mercer, we want him to get better, obviously, and hoping to see him real soon, you know, back into action and tweeting and talking about his team only the way he can. James, I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, with The Athletic, James Boyd is our guest, Colts beat writer, and hybrid now doing Pacers, or are we attaching Pacers beat writer <laughs> title to you? Have you reached that point again yet? Look, man, I had to prove myself. I felt like a little bit that I could handle the Colts on my own, and now I got a little more sway in the you know in the office. So excited to be helping out with the Pacers here um, a lot more often, just because of the, the time difference. You know, being in the office with the Colts, but I'll be around more. 
you know, All-Star Weekend, but just to play off on all those things. So excited to be, uh, I guess, a hybrid again. <laughs> well, it's great to have your coverage back on the Pacers side of things. What did you think last night in the home debut of Siakam? And a lot to unpack there, the third quarter that was really, really ugly for the Pacers, but then they have chances late. What were your takeaways? I thought it was a game. I know everyone, not everyone, but a few people were you know, like, oh, man, they got to win a game, or they made this trade, they haven't won yet. Obviously, Halliburton not being in there factors into the equation. But if you go back and look at that fourth quarter last night, I thought that Siakam made every right play that you possibly could, especially when he's getting double teamed. It just came down to making shots. You know, Miles Turner, Aaron Neesmith, um, some of these guys just had to make a three. And if they made one of these three, which they do what the Pacers normally do, they win that game. They knock off the champs in the hell here because this morning is a lot different. So I think it was a good performance from him. Good points from the team, and they're still trying to figure each other out because there were times where I was like, wait a second, why is, you know, Andrew Nimhard dribbling for 10 seconds, get the ball to Siakam, and get out of the way? Because if there's one person I think that can help their half-court offense when it does get stagnant, it's that guy because he can go get his own shot. So it was a good game, good performance. You want to, you know, keep an eye on Halliburton, his health going forward. We obviously know the all-NBA implications of him missing a bunch of time, but from a team perspective, it's hard to evaluate the trade because – they haven't been together to play enough, and they won't, you know, have that opportunity this week. So, just uh, everyone relax, deep breaths, and remember that uh, they traded for Siakam because he's a really good player, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time for you to see it, you know, result in some wins. They need to win some games, though, here as of late. James Boyd of the Athletic is our guest. Uh, James, with the Siakam deal, what would you say is a fair number on number of games? And, and uh, let Let's say Halliburton comes back Sunday. That might be aggressive, but let's just say for the sake of this point that Tyrese Halliburton comes back on Sunday. Um, what would you say is a fair number of games that they have to play with one another before you can get a real feel as to what Indiana looks like post-trade? I would say about 15. I know that's probably not what everyone wants to hear, but I would definitely say it has to be at least 10, preferably 15 to see, you know, just all the ebbs and flows of the NBA life, you know what I mean? Like, okay, how does it look when you're in a tight game, when you're in a blowout, um, when you're humming, when you're not humming? Like, how do all those things work out? And I think also when you look at what's happened with the team, you know, we talk about the offense, how he's going to help them, all those things. But defensively, what does he bring to the table? How does it change the rotations and things like that? How does everyone adjust around him? So, I think there's so many factors that go into it that 15 games would be a good barometer for this. And also because 15 games, at that point, you're getting down to, you know, playoff seating and stuff like that. So you want to know who you are before you get to those nitty-gritty games and obviously the playoffs. you think it's more so Siakam learning his teammates and their tendencies on the floor or the teammates learning Siakam? I think it's more so him. Because even last night, there were times where I thought he was a bit passive, where maybe he wouldn't have been in Toronto because he's the, already the guy. But you can see in certain moments, it's like, you know, do I be aggressive? He said it after the game. You know, when do I be aggressive? When do I, you know, uh, trust my teammates? And I thought he did a good job of that last night. But there's probably moments where he could have been more aggressive, where he's probably thinking to himself, I'm the new guy. I don't want to step on any toes. I don't want to, you know – make anybody think that I don't trust them or I'm a ball hog or anything like that. But I think when Halliburton comes back and as long as Ricardo's in his ear, he's going to tell him, hey, we traded for you to be the all-NBA player, to be the 20-point-per-game scorer, to be a you know, switchable defender, all these things. So be yourself. And it sounds 
you know, cliche, but it, it's true. I mean, they didn't trade for anybody else other than him to come out there and play at his, you know, his level, his style of play. So I'm excited for it. It takes time. It's not, you know, easy. And plus, they haven't practiced it all either. I'm actually outside the facility today because they have a little bit of a practice today. And it's like their first real one, I think, since they traded for him because they've been on the road so much. Back to the Colts, James Boyd of The Athletic. Take me through the offseason and what it looks like. I guess a two-part question. What does this offseason look like for Anthony Richardson, and how would it look different had he never been hurt? I think he gave us a glimpse. He said he would take a little bit of a vacation, but no vacation for him. He's, as he put it, all gas to the floor, excited to get back. I think a lot of it just has to do with his health. I mean, had he played all year, then you will be working with a much larger sample size of film on him. But by now, I would imagine if I look at his film and his plays, you know, 20 times over, if not more, because he has so much time during the season. So now it's about getting healthy and then trying to build on a season where you didn't have as much experience as you wanted to. So you're trying to maybe uh, make up for it or kind of guesstimate how you should build the next as opposed to a guy like T.J. Stroud where you know he's been through every situation so far or a lot more than Nancy Richardson. So a lot of it is health, and I think beyond that is just how much can you build on your maybe mental reps to prepare yourself for what's to come? Because we didn't get a chance to see, you know, him adjust to an offense in real time or, I mean, or adjust to a defense, rather, in real time, in a real game, you know, over, or, or even over a few period of weeks. It was just kind of the start and stop, whereas now he's got a chance to reset and hopefully stay healthy for the future, and then we'll get a real glimpse of him, you know, come this fall. James Boyd is our guest, covers the Colts as well as the Pacers now for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at RomeovilleKid. James, I know this is getting close to your favorite time of year. How long before we get that Romeoville 1.0 mock draft? And if you have not started that process yet, uh, any any names that catch your eye? Have you looked at all in terms of where the Colts, in terms of 15, what might be available for them? Yeah, I actually reacted to one of our mock drafts and I got the greatest reaction because people were telling me, oh, I love this. And then people were telling me, I hate this. And I'm like, yes, it's my draft season. So <laughs> for me, I think um, I'm still kind of filling out some offseason stuff. I got some other stories I'm working on. But I would say probably after the Super Bowl, you can expect me to buckle down really in around combine time to start doing some mock drafts and really, you know, lean heavily into like film, you know, draft, you know, ratings and grades and stuff like that. But um, I'm excited about it. I, I say it all the time. Mock drafts are the biggest scam in American history, as far as I'm concerned, because everyone just loses their mind over fake picks. But it sells, man. It gets clicks. It gets people talking. And it's a fun exercise. It teaches me anything, um, if anything, about you know the new draft class coming up. So um, I would just say, everyone, relax. But as far as players go, I think Brock Bowers is the name you hear from everybody. Um, I got a little bit of a tip for chat last week with some fans. I will say this on air. If he drops to 15, the Colts take him, and everyone, be quiet, because he's a really good player, and they could use him at tight end. That's all I'll say about that. Marvin Harrison, Jr., I know everyone's like, oh, they're going to trade up for him. No, they will not. Do you want a building in Indianapolis? Do you want a, a stadium? Do you want nice things around the facility? Because if they don't, if, you know, if you want Marvin Harrison, Jr., Jimmy, it's going to cost <laughs> all of that. So you're going to have Marvin Harrison, Jr., Jonathan Taylor, Anthony Richardson, and maybe like one football to practice with, with no players. So, no, Marvin Harrison Jr. will not be a Colts, but Brock Bowers, possibly. We'll see.
Hey, James, you never know what happens when you pick up that phone, right? I mean, you, you, you just never know. You never know if there's going to be an <laughs> offer that you just can't refuse. Well, we'll look forward look, to that. Obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm praying for Jim Ursay to get better, but I do think I want to hear his thoughts on you know, Marshall Harrison Jr. Because there is one guy who is trying to pull off his yeah. trade. It is Ursay. <laughs> we were going to drift towards this area eventually, but you oftentimes... In friendly banter ways, James Boyd is our guest, covers all things Colts and Pacers now for The Athletic. As an Illinois guy, you often get into it on Twitter with a lot of fan bases, but especially Indiana. Are you, uh, are you, are you, are you, are you, are you digging any graves at this point? Or are you keeping, you know, steady the James Boyd that we all know? Look, I have learned that making people mad who help keep you employed probably isn't a good idea. But um, I will say this, you know, my Illinois top 10, 14-4, not too bad. I'll take that. And so I'm looking forward to that matchup, that game, obviously. But I do think that people are kind of a bit overstated with some of the Mike Woodson talk. I do think they have to play better. He has to be accountable for some of these, you know, in-game adjustments and things like that, which is so frustrating for this fan base. However, you lost two NBA players last year, so it wasn't going to be some smooth transition. They can play better. They should play better. And I do think that I feel the fans when they say that IU should be a perennial tournament team, which is not, you know, shouldn't be some hard, you know, ask considering the history of the program, what basketball means in this state. But, um, again, I'm just – I'm leaning more towards don't panic. You know, it's a reset year. If they come back next year and you're like, oh, my God, what happened? Then I think you need to ask some serious questions. But for now – you know, relax. Remember where you were. You gotta go with two NBA players. Hey, James, your Super Bowl pick. Go. The Baltimore Ravens over the Detroit Lions. I'm going for all the feel-good stories. I think Lamar wants to shut up all the doubters, all the haters who says he's a glorified running back. And I think Detroit is like probably the best overall, you know, sports story right going on right now with everything that city went through to get back to this point. So, those are my picks. Again, Baltimore. Over Detroit, Lamar Jackson, two-world MVP, and everyone can kind of uh, get off his back and recognize that he's a truly great, you know, potential Hall of Fame quarterback. You know, I, I love the – I would love to see Detroit get in. I think most people would, right? Um, if Detroit were to win in San Francisco, would it be because because of Detroit or because, San Fran, because of what San Francisco didn't do? In other words, truth be told, man-to-man across the board, do, is Detroit – can they hang with San Francisco, or are we relying on, with that prediction, say a Brock Purdy letdown? Probably the latter. I think Brock Purdy's a really good player. I don't think he's on the level of Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. He's a really good player, deserves a ton of credit for getting them to the NFC Championship. But I'm banking on, you know, it's more of a heart pick than a head pick. I just like Detroit, what they've been through. But if they are going to pull it off, it's probably because they're going to get some you know, timely turnover, a fluky bounce on a punt or something like that that swings the game in their favor and they capitalize on it. And then they also play mistake-free football when they're not turning it over to the 49ers who have a great defense. So that's kind of where I fall on that. James Boyd of The Athletic is our guest. James, tell me what other stuff you've got that you're working on or that we can see upcoming that you'll be writing about. I would say just stay tuned for more free agency stuff that I'm working on. Um, I have a Shane Steichen piece that I've been uh, working at diligently. It feels like I'm trying to dig into this guy's life and who he is and just trying to give you all something new about him. So I'm excited about that piece, which will be coming out in a few weeks. And then also just 
um, as Jimmy said, just working on mock draft stuff and getting ready for the most visceral reaction that I ever get every year because everyone gets mad or happy about picks that aren't real. But I love it. Hey, James, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think would upset your following more? Simulating a trade in one of your mocks up to get Marvin Harrison Jr. or a trade back into the second round? I think a trade back. I think a trade back, whatever. Everyone in my mentor is saying, you know, why did they hire this guy? Get him out of my state. He's just messing with my feelings. But you know what, Jimmy? You might be on to something because you know me. I like to, you know, ruffle a few feathers. You're not afraid to stir every now and again, especially when it's mock season. I mean, hey, and then there is a history of Chris Ballard trading back, right? which is very real. No. So, you know, you might be writing my story for me right now. I don't know. <laughs> hey, we, 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 we could speak over it, uh, get drinks sometimes. There's some uh, commission of a uh, Bud Light or something like that. We, we, we can go there, Diet Coke, whatever. There you go. I'll, I'll give you a byline credit as well. James, last thing for me, as you, as you switch from Colts to Pacers and back and forth, as you look at this, what, next two games without Tyrese Halliburton, what's one thing you want to see from the Pacers that maybe you have not seen already with the arrival of Siakam? I think probably just more offensive fluidity. I think they get stagnant in certain moments, especially late in games. Obviously, it's hard because you're so used to Tyrese Halliburton running the show. He is probably the best pure passing point guard in the NBA right now. But I just want to see a little bit more motion. At one point early in the game, there was just not a lot of ball movement, not a lot of assists, not a lot of Pacers basketball happening. So, um, I think that comes with time, comes with repetition, and I'm excited for those guys to get out there and just play well and, and obviously give this city you know, at least one win during this homestand to get kind of that monkey off their back. James, appreciate it as always, and we'll look for the versatility of the writing between the Pacers and the Colts, but certainly appreciate the time today. Appreciate it, man. It took a little while to get the rust off, and it was a later kickoff, used to 1 p.m., but it was uh, not even kickoff, tip-off. I'm already messing up, but That's I appreciate right. it. That's right. Yeah, you gotta. You're in the witching hours now, man. Welcome to. Uh, <laughs> trust me, if anybody, James, I can tell you that your body adjusts quickly. Believe you me, especially if it's later in the day. Better than better than early in the day. And you know, covering games on a Thursday night's easier than, in my opinion, a Sunday morning or whatever else it might be. Remember, like early, early on in my play by play career, when I just started like adding football on top of basketball and like first play, first drive, shot clock down to t- oh play clock right it just happens like there's a right. little nuances yeah. whether you're on the beat or whether you're in the booth where it just you it, know it gets you sometimes when i did and it was as a student so it was not necessarily like but i remember when i would do play by play and do basketball and football in the course of a calendar year people would ask me which i preferred and i would always say during football season i'm like oh it's football and then during basketball season I'm like oh it's definitely basketball yeah you know you enjoy both of them you forget like from one uh, to the other. It's a Wednesday, by the way. Pacers last night, tough one against Denver. We'll continue talking about it. Philly up next. And that, of course, has a guy that just dropped 70. They can't leave Joel and Bede alone like they did Jokic last night. We'll explain a little bit more on that. It is Quarry Company here, 93.5, The Fan. So, Jimmy, I'd like to know what you did last night. Anything fun? No, not really. Pretty laid back evening. Watch the Pacers, watch Purdue. Nothing too hectic. Pretty just standard January evening. How about you, Jake? Uh, I went to the game last night. Were you up in the sky deck? No, that was. I took that picture. Um, I because you've been talking about the Kroger sky deck in the past. That's why I, I, love I it, thought. Man. Maybe... I'll tell you what. When when my buddy Byron and I went to the game together, we went up there just to check it out. 
And I love it. I think it's great. great. I mean, it's super cool up there. And I had made the point last night. I I guess my wording was wrong because I said demolished. I meant closed. But um, the... In December, in December, Gamebridge Fieldhouse will be older than was Market Square Arena when it was closed. And it sat closed for like 15 months before they actually demolished it. But it's an, I mean, because I, I do think that Market Square, by the time it came down, felt dated. I don't think that Gamebridge Fieldhouse does. Now, granted, I know they've done massive renovations to it, but it still is, I mean, when you walk in, it feels pretty brand new. Yeah, there's not a space, and I didn't really think even before the renovations there was a space where you're like, oh, like what's what's going on over here? Right. Like they've always done a good job with upkeep, and then you add in the renovations they've done over the last couple of years, and it's I'd put it up there with any other arena. I don't follow intimately Michigan basketball, obviously, and I know that in today's day and age, like things, you know, it's it's pretty cyclical, but I I mean. Jimmy, I'm stunned that they're as bad as they are. And I know Purdue's really good. And I think it's – listen, what Purdue – Purdue last night basically sent memo, right, to the rest of the college basketball world. Look, we can shoot from the outside. We don't need Zach Eady to get 30 and 15 every night. We can we can blow you off the floor without Eady being the dominant Zach Eady. Now, certainly his, his dominance is probably seen even not in his scoring but rather in facilitating for that outside shooting elsewhere. But like, how did Michigan become this bad? I, I'm as perplexed as you are. I really don't have the direct answer for it. Um, I don't remember where they were directly in preseason, but I don't think this was thought that. Hey, I think it's get been a slow. Sli- I mean, I yeah. think it's been a, a gradual slide. I don't think it's like fell off a cliff right. type thing. But man, and I like listen. You know, the first year that Jawan Howard was there, you never know in a first year of a coach because a lot of that they're they're kind of running stuff probably from the previous system, but. They're, even as even as Jawan Howard was learning the ropes from a coaching standpoint, he had Phil Martelli on his on his bench, who I, I've always liked. You know, they are a at this stage, January twenty fourth, twenty twenty four. You look at them in the same vein, and obviously Indiana can't do this because they lost to them. But you look at the same way in terms of conference standing as you do Rutgers, like they're 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 bottom of the conference. They're worse than Rutgers by win percentage. You look at Michigan, and all of a sudden it's all right. Well, that's a W. Don't have to worry about it. They're two and six in conference, seven and twelve overall. They're in dire straits. And again, just because it's still Michigan and it's the Big Ten, and I get it, like anybody can win on a nightly basis, but Purdue took care of business last night. I think Michigan's actually comparable to Indiana in this situation that you have to remember they lost Hunter Dickinson, Kobe Bufkin, and Jet Howard. No, I mean fair, right? They, they lost, lost a lot of talent. Two right? NBA guys and then, you know, the runner up for the Naismith basketball player of the year this year probably so i mean you're trying to replace three dudes that led your team in scoring last year it's no easy task and plus uh Jawan howard had the health issue to start the season so he wasn't on the sidelines as the head coach but he was still there to some extent so a lot of things well, happening and and this will be something that is discussed as we get towards this off season, which is still many moons away and we still have march madness to look forward to but i would put that as an indictment of howard just because of the fact that regardless of the reason for it, Hunter Dickinson was a piece that was lost to the transfer portal. And that is an aspect of college basketball today. And you've highlighted as well, Jake, you have to be able to not only recruit new players, but keep your own guys there. And so it's not just a, oh, well, what was Michigan? They lost 
Hunter Dickinson, and I'm sure it's more nuanced than just, hey, I'm going to Michigan. I'm sure it was a deeper thing than, or going to Kansas, but that's part of the story. You, you lost him to the portal. There was a, speaking of losing, a college program that lost their coach. And I think it could have some implication, locally speaking. I'll tell you who, and I'll explain next. This is a, like, really, really, really kind of random and obscure reference that one of those that I I might be the only one that even knows what it is, and I'm not even entirely certain that I remember the exact storyline, but do you guys know who Rip Van Winkle is? I don't know if it's... Is it a fairy tale or is it a cartoon like Rip Van Winkle? I've heard the name. Eddie? I've heard the name. Couldn't attribute it to anything. I, I I don't know if it's a fairy tale or a story, but Rip Van Winkle's the dude that fell asleep for like 100 years and then woke up and, you know, the world had passed him by. If you were Rip Van Winkle and you had fallen asleep, here's a, here's a fun way to do this. Oh, this is funny. Mark Boyle just referenced Rip Van Winkle, Rip Van Winkle the other night. Boy, I've never felt younger. Um that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> and then Pat Boylan explained it to me, and I'm like, and I still don't remember what Pat, what Pat said. So it was profound, is what you're saying. Yeah. If you were to go back to, if you were Rip Van Winkle and you fell asleep during the 1980, let's say, two college basketball season, okay? The, and you were looking at the top 25. Now, Eddie, can you pull up for me today to like today's top twenty-five, like this week? Okay. And the schools that are on it, you know, you always get your standard schools that go without saying. Okay. But the nineteen eighty. So, do you have today's top twenty-five? Give me the top ten real quick. I do. Top ten in order: UConn, Purdue, North Carolina, Houston, Tennessee. Kentucky, Kansas, Auburn, Arizona, Illinois. So the only on that list that like in the early 80s, you'd be like, what would be, I mean, Houston was a dominant program. If you fell asleep in 1982 and you woke up today and you saw that top 25, you would, okay, Houston, that's cool. Auburn might surprise you a little bit. Uh, UConn would certainly surprise you because they were a nobody until Jim Calhoun got there. But the 1982 Associated Press men's basketball poll, the top 20 at the end of the year. Louisville, UCLA, Wake Forest. Okay, UAB has probably fallen off a cliff. Iowa, Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Fresno State. Yeah, okay, Tulsa, okay. Memphis is kind of back. Idaho, like Idaho, really? They had a basketball program? The Vandals. That's right. Uh, Minnesota, Georgetown, Missouri, Oregon State. And then Virginia, North Carolina, and the number two team in the country. And this is one that I've just, I will never understand how this program has fallen the way it has. The Blue Demons of DePaul. It's located in northern Chicago. When, when, you know, back when, when Ray Meyer was coaching them and you had Mark Aguirre and then all the way in through the late 80s, Dallas Comagies. I mean, there were great teams at DePaul. And DePaul, JMV and I were just talking about this the other day. The 81 tournament, when Indiana won it all, 
in Indiana, don't get me wrong, they had the largest margin, average margin of victory in NCAA tournament history for until I believe Vegas broke that record, but still like a top three all time. They absolutely just stormed their way through the NCAA tournament. Once Isaiah Thomas and then Landon Turner kind of got in sync with one another, it, it was over. But DePaul was really good, and DePaul got upset in the 81 tournament by St. Joe's, which allowed, kind of opened the door for Indiana to, to work their way through. And then UAB, I think it was, had beaten Kentucky, and that helped as well. Probably didn't matter, but my point being, DePaul was the consensus in 81 going into the tournament. That was the team that that you know everybody thought was going to make all kinds of noise because it was one of the preeminent programs. And since then, just terrible. And I don't understand how. I mean, you're in – they're at risk of probably falling out of the Big East, for crying out loud. But you're in Chicago. You would think that you could recruit and, – and people don't realize this, too. James Boyd, we could have asked about this. But if you go to Chicago, you know, Illinois – like Champaign is what they call downstate. And I think a lot of kids that grow up in Chicago, and in particular kids like that, that like in the public schools in Chicago – Champagne is like a different world to them. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, you, in Indianapolis, IU and Purdue both are like, you know, that's the thing, right? In, in high schools, everybody knows of IU and Purdue. In a high school in Chicago, Illinois is like, I mean, it might as well be Iowa to them, right? Right. And so DePaul yesterday, they're 3-15, and 15, and they fire their head coach, which is always peculiar when you fire a coach like in the middle of the sea. I mean, you got to be like really bad or scandalous or something. When you're making a firing in the middle of the season. Now, Jake, I can hear you right now. Folks, I can hear you in your car. Jake, why are you talking about this? This is an Indianapolis radio show. Bless you. Two of the names that are believed to be, one of them has been circled around for a while in terms of the DePaul head coaching job. Tony Stubblefield was fired after a three and fifteen start. They have an assistant on staff that is going to write out the year for them in the Big East. Two names of possibility, and the one that's floated around before this even took place: Florida Atlantic's Dusty May. Now, Jake, that's great. He's at Florida Atlantic and DePaul's in Chicago. Again, I'm driving and I'm about to – why are you talking about this on an Indianapolis radio show? Dusty May, former Indiana manager, and I think – and listen, I'm not in no way, shape, or form am I insinuating that Mike Woodson's leaving anytime soon. I'm not saying that. But if Mike Woodson – I'm not saying Woodson would be asked to leave. There's nothing – that indicates that that's a possibility or that his job's in any sort of jeopardy. But just based on Mike Woodson's age and the amount of money he's made in the professional ranks and whatever else, I, you know, if he decided to retire or just thought, you know what, I'm good. Dusty May is absolutely, unequivocally without question, a name that Indiana fans, that's their safety net. For a long time, it was Brad Stevens. For a long time, it was Steve Alford. Probably opposite order there. And then maybe even Thad Mata. But now for a lot of Indiana fans, the future savior is Dusty May. JMV's Green County buddy Dusty May. And for good reason. You know, he took a team to a Final Four. They, he's obviously a guy that, that 
understands IU basketball, etc. The other name, you threw out a good one, Eddie, right? From Terre Haute? Yes, I did. Go ahead. Josh Schurz. The head coach at Indiana State. Is you have you've got to have the feeling. I mean, there's already talk that Robbie, and I never know if it's um Avelia or Avelia. I've heard it said both ways. But the big man at Indiana State, there's rumor that he already has a deal in place for an NIL thing for Illinois next year. He's an Illinois native. I you know, ironically enough, I think he's actually from the Chicago area and and yet may go downstate. But but the point being Indiana State with the year they've had and they're off to a really good that you know they've had a really good season. Um you kind of get the feeling as much as I hate to say it, that Josh Schurz is not going to be there for long. And that's no slight to Indiana State, but some big program could take him along. You know, is DePaul one that would tempt him? Would DePaul tempt Dusty May? I don't know, but it's closer to home to begin with, right, Jimmy? Yeah, I mean, but is that focusing just on May? Whenever you see a coach at, at a mid-major or smaller conference and they have success, like Josh Hurts is having in Indiana State, like Dusty May undoubtedly had last year, and they're still in the top 25 in their own right, and you'd expect them to be a tournament team and make some noise again this year as well. Isn't the leap bigger than that? I mean, I guess I just don't view DePaul in that same reverence in part because they're they're one and two the last 30 years, the last tournament appearance, 2004. Is that such an attractive job just because it's the Big East? That you wouldn't think that there'd be a better opportunity available? I think the... Or is it the home thing that you're hammering part? No, I think... Here's the thing. It's a really, really good question. Um, I think there are a couple of things in play. DePaul... I I mean... DePaul may be... Like one of the worst jobs, theoretically, because nobody can win there, clearly, right? But... And they don't not advertise, by the way. Like, I lived in Chicago for a year. Like, you see DePaul billboards all over the city. Like, Big East basketball in Chicago. Like, DePaul, Chicago school. The only real competition they have in terms of close proximity is Northwestern, right? Like, that's that's a different conference as well. So it's not like they don't have, they're not taking time to, hey, we're here. We're right here in Chicago, big city. I, I think there are a couple of things that come into play here on why you would be tempted. Dusty May, I think, makes just over a million at Florida Atlantic, okay? Yeah, money always does it. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I have no idea what DePaul would pay. I mean, it's a it's a private school, so that, that changes. It's probably not public. I mean, we could look to see what Stubblefield made. But I do think that for coaches, there is a real tempt about being in the Chicago area and the recruiting base of it. I, I You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Now, I would think that... I just feel like he's going to get more sexy offers if there's another... Maybe he will anyway, but there's another successful campaign down in Florida that he would get that. The Paul job probably for either one of these guys would be of intrigue, maybe just because they've they've gotten in front of it, and so they're going to be the first one making a hire. So maybe it's the fact that like they're in a big league. I, I, I can see how... Now, for Dusty May... I'd have to see how old Dusty May is. But if Dusty May is around my age, the reality is that you, we oftentimes just revert back to, I have said this a billion times, and I think in sports it it is so true, that 
music and sports have this in common, and that is that most people, you revert back to your most impressionable years. You stop somebody right now and you go, what music do you listen to most often? And most people will tell you the music they, that they revert back to and listen to with the most regularity is the stuff that was current or that, re- that they were listening to and enjoying between the ages of 15 and 25. Because when you get to be 30, 40, 50 years old, you have such a fondness for those that era of like when you're in the moment, you don't feel that way, but you look back on it and you go, man, that was just such a carefree time in my life. And so people, you know, you, you ask some 55-year-old guy right now, who's your favorite man? Journey. You know, they're they're not exactly like running out and buying something current, right? And I think the same is kind of true with sports. For a Dusty May, can you look up Eddie Dusty May's age and how old Dusty May is? Um I, he, I think he was at IU just after me, maybe. So he's, he's, but my point being to him, 47. Okay. So yeah. So to Dusty May, DePaul was a preeminent program during his childhood. So, so he would be like, like me a little, probably more not, he would be naive because he's in coaching, but you know, that, that name recognition is like, oh man, DePaul, like that's a sleeping giant because that was a a major program for the better part of the 80s into the early 90s. And again, the recruiting base of like, how man, you can go into Chicago. You can go into Westinghouse and Simeon and, you know, King High School in Chicago, and there's just talent galore. And get those guys to come play at DePaul, stay right near home. That probably would be it. Now, from a monetary standpoint, like I see Stubblefield, his base was 400 grand. I mean, that's way low. I would imagine there had to be some sort of bonuses or camp money or whatever else that put him up over like the two million range, but money would be the biggest thing. The biggest thing, right? Yeah, I mean that's in any walk of life, but especially if you're trying to rebuild a program and want a hire that would be not just attractive to recruits in terms of the recent success, but also want to get buy-in. Where I think you get poached by other bigger name schools, the money has to be significant. Yes. Now the other thing that. Um, in the NBA, I, this Doc Rivers things feel it just feels shady, right? Yes. <laughs> Can you lay out for people, Jimmy, what has taken place with Milwaukee between Doc Rivers and Griffin and everything that took place and and went down and seemingly happened like overnight? So, Milwaukee Bucks, as we go off the air yesterday, fire first year head coach Adrian Griffin, who did multiple interviews like they went through a ton of stuff to be able to land this guy and they ultimately decide on him and it's his first year they're a top team in the east they are viewed as a team that is in contention to win another nba championship and there's a lot of pressure there of course because damian lillard was an acquisition in the offseason there was pressure internally because Giannis is saying publicly i I don't know i might leave here like we need to be able to go get stars and they go do that and so there's all this pressure and it feels like oh hey Maybe they're going to not crack underneath that pressure. They're sailing smoothly right into the all-star break. And you have Doc Rivers, who <laughs> is, by the way, at some point, I don't remember the exact date because I don't have it in front of me, but he is brought on as an advisor to Adrian Griffin in Milwaukee. So he's working with the Bucks on their staff as an advisor. Then you find out yesterday that news breaks. 
and that they're parting ways with him and there doesn't appear to be anything nefarious. People speculate maybe he lost the locker room, maybe whatever. But then last night, as we get off the air, front runner appears to be Doc Rivers. I figure, all right, this will take a couple days. Well, then on NBA on TNT, which is, for those that don't know, don't follow it regularly, there's always action on the NBA throughout the week on their flagship in TNT or one of their flagships in TNT. And they break news that is Doc Rivers is the next head coach. No, they didn't break it. Uh, well, right. I, again, they, they were attributing who? They attributed, I said breaking because it's their parent company, but they attribute it to a, or a sister station. They attribute it to CNN Sports. Okay, so hold on. Eddie, do we have the breaking news center? If we could, please, let's play it. Thank you. Uh, this just in, CNN still does sports. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. I, did, everyone was like, well, <laughs> CNN Sports? What? Like, who? What, what is CNN Sports? Like, <laughs> is that the guy? Is Vanner Wright still there? In Los Angeles, like Vince Cellini, is he still at CNN Sports? Fred Hickman, or, or not Fred Hickman, he was WIBC. What was the guy's name? But but regardless, like C- CNN SI is like the last time I heard of them, they were getting tapes from Neil Reed, right? They're still in it, apparently. Okay. I don't know if they still have updated graphics or not, but they're apparently still in it. So Adam Lefko, who hosts some of the NBA on TNT action, when it's not the usual of Ernie Johnson and Kenny the Jet and Shaq and Charles, I believe it. I can't remember who all's on that. If it's, I think it might be Candace Parker and Lefko and Shaq and uh, Jamal Crawford, I think is their rotation. I could be off on one or two people. But anyway, they say that like CNN and like Crawford's like CNN. He's like, yeah, that's who it is. But there's immediate hesitancy around the household names of newsbreakers. Adrian Wojnarowski. Chris Haynes, Shams Tarania. It's like, well, they're still working on stuff. It's not finalized yet. And then before we go on the air today, it finally is reported by those key pieces that for a lot of fans, it's not real until I see it from them. So the whole thing is odd, and it's hard not to look at Doc Rivers going from that advisor role to becoming the head coach, unless I mean, there's something else that happened that's not been reported yet. I, I think the speculation was that there was a fallout between Adrian Griffin and a player. The Giannis thought is he lost Lodo, the locker right? room. That's right. what's been talked about nationally. Um, yes. You know, and this is the world that we live in today where, and, and, you know, locker rooms can dictate when you're paying guys that kind of money. And I think people, I think oftentimes we resent in athletes what we wish for ourselves. Everybody. Not everybody. I, I, that's a strong generalization. Many people by human nature, if they work at a company, not querying company, we, 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 we hope that all employees here are satisfied with their job and everything else. But most people in their job wish that they could go in to their boss and say, I don't like the way you're doing business. I didn't like the fact that you had a team's meeting during the middle of my kid's little league game. I don't like the fact that you called a meeting at two o'clock on a Monday when I was trying to eat my lunch. And I certainly don't like the fact that you made me work on two different holidays last year and I didn't get a comp day. So you know what? You can shove it. I'm tired of this place. You don't pay me enough. You overwork me. You, you you favor Jim in accounting, and he's an idiot. And and Sally, I've never gotten along with her. And and clearly, you, you've got to think for her because you keep promoting her. I'm sick of it. I'm out of here. Taking my ball, and I'm going home. I'm taking my ball and going home, right? 
I think deep down, everybody kind of wishes at times in their workplace they could do that kind of oh, thing, the ultimate right? power move, right? Right, and it, I mean, there are comic strips based on entirely that yeah. fantasy world that people live in. But guess what? It's a fantasy world. You go in nonetheless. I mean, there's a reason Office Space was such a popular movie, but you go in, you do your job, you you put your, your head down, you carry your lunch pail, and you go home. And in the NBA salaries now are so high and you are investing so much money in players that the player ain't going anywhere. So the coach better like get along with the locker room because if they don't and it comes down, push comes down to shove between player and coach, the organization is saying, well, let's see, I'm paying one of these guys. I got two guys in my office right now that are unhappy, right? And the two guys in my office that are unhappy, one of them I'm paying $4 million a year, and the other one I'm paying a guaranteed contract of $61 million a year. $61 million a year. So if I fire that guy, not only do I have to replace him as an employee, but I've got to pay him $61 million. It's probably easier if I get rid of the guy that's making $4 million a year. So therefore, the employee has all of the power. And we as fans probably resent the fact that that means that players are able to do exactly what the rest of us can only fantasize. They can go in and go, I'm tired of this guy. I don't like the fact that he called a practice at 2 o'clock during my kid's little league and he had a team's meeting on a Monday at 9 when I was trying to sleep in. And I don't think he can relate to the way that – and on top of all that, he wants to do some sort of a spreadsheet in a language that I don't even understand, and I'm tired of trying to figure it out. So can we get another guy in here, please? Okay. And it's easy for us as fans, as John Q. Public, to be like, that's why I'm tired of these divas. But in reality, the reason that we're tired of it is because we kind of wish we could do the same thing, right? But I think that's what it came down to. I think players went and said, yeah. I'm not a fan of this guy. I don't like his approach. It's, I don't, you know, whatever it might be. It's pretty clear it wasn't just a one off, at least in terms of if that's the way it happened. I mean, of course, Damian Lowered and Giannis are going to carry the most weight of anybody in that locker room, but it would appear that it's, you know, one through 17, one through 15 on that roster. You brought up yesterday, which, look, I don't have like a personal vendetta against Doc Rivers. Like, I've, I've always enjoyed media hits, press conferences when he's involved, but you brought up the fact that well, game sevens, like he's one of the worst coaches in game seven history. So he's six and 10. I figured out what it was, by the way, he has lost more three to one leads than okay. any coach in history. That, and he has the most game seven losses of any coach in NBA history. He's never won a game seven on the road. Uh, we won't do the whole list, but from 2010 to 2023, this with different teams, blew a three, two lead, blew a three, two lead, blew a one Oh lead, blew a three, one lead, blew a two Oh lead, blew a two, one lead. 3-1, 2-1, and then last year, 76ers, Celtics, 3-2, lead blown. Now, the other side of that, it would be you got to actually get to game seven to lose that many, Correct. right? Yeah. Look, I, I, there's, there's other marks with Doc that isn't just, hey, look at how much he struggled in game sevens. I will admit, though, with some of those, you didn't have to force Game 7. You had Game 7 forced upon you. And there's a difference there, right? When you're the team that forces it and you don't close it out, well, they were tired. They were down 3-1 or they were down 3-2. They just couldn't get over the hump in Game 7. When you have the lead, that narrative shifts a little bit. 
because you had it in your grasp and you had closeout game after closeout game and you couldn't get it done. That no. said, I, I, I whatever. The, the Bucks have, with the state of the Bucks, I don't view it as, oh, they bring Doc Rivers in and now all of a sudden they're more assured to win a championship than they were before. I think it's good to have a coach with championship experience. I would think that they probably went to Giannis and went to Dame or like, hey, we're thinking about Doc Rivers. How do you feel about it? But I don't think that changes their championship aspirations. I think it's entirely possible that they saw that the guy had lost the locker room. They hired Doc Rivers to come in and try to talk to him on how to have better player relations. Doc Rivers saw it up close and personal and was like, man, I don't know. This is this is a tough one. So they said, okay, well, we're going to get rid of him. And by the way, Doc, what are you doing on Wednesday? You know what I mean? Yes. I think I've got a game on ESPN. That's right. Well, you don't need more, right? But Doris Burke and Mike Breen. And don't, don't even know. tell me that you got a game on CNNSI because we didn't even know that still existed. I've right? always wanted to. You mentioned people wanting to like quit their job and have that moment. And maybe it's just, I just realized this has been a dream of mine. The idea of not starting, but successfully pulling off, not of government, but of just like that internal in a company, pulling off a coup. Like how field is how good does Doc Rivers have to oh. feel today if that is what happened? Right. Like that dude totally just like he came in, he did the inventory, and he's like, you know, actually, here's the thing. I think you could make a few changes. Like what? Well, like have me in charge. Uh last night the Pacers did make some changes in terms of who was on the floor late. Did it hurt or help them? We will break that down next. Doc Rivers, by the way, we'll see which one of the two of you. I'm guessing Eddie Garrison will be able to pull this rabbit out of the hat. Give me the association, Eddie Garrison, between Doc Rivers and Steph Curry. Oh, it is. Steph's wife is related to Doc in some capacity. No, no Steph's brother. Is? Seth is dating Doc's daughter. Right? Close. Seth Curry, which is the brother of Steph Curry, yes. is married to Doc Rivers' daughter. Isn't that what I just said? I think you said oh, David. You said, oh, right. David. My bad. So, so, in other words, Doc Rivers' son-in-law is Steph Curry's brother. Even though Seth Curry also an NBA player. So, not to turn it, but Steph the more known of the two. Right. Uh, last night at the Fieldhouse, Pacers and Nuggets. The key to the game, there were a couple of them. Thought the Pacers got out. You know, it was really interesting because they, at one point, they got up by, I think, 13. It may have even been 15, but they had a double digit lead. And it, but it wasn't like a, you know, a flurry or a run that got the crowd on its feet. You know, Indiana on a 10 nothing run and the crowd erupts. It was a pretty slow and methodical. You know, it's a two-point lead. Now it's four, and then a couple minutes later, it's six. You know, it 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 happened. You ever driven to Denver? No. Love Denver, though. Beautiful. It's a great city. If you drive to Denver, you 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 know, it's the Mile High City. Suddenly, you're at seven thousand feet above sea level. But you drive across Kansas, and you can see the Earth hit the sky because it's as flat as a board. And it's a very gradual incline. You don't realize as you're driving it that you're gradually inclining. And there are times when you watch a game and that's what it feels like. You know, you're like, wait a minute, all of a sudden it's a 12-point game, but it took five and a half minutes, you know, 10 minutes to get there. Or there, you know, there are bursts, right? So Indiana last night, 
is kind of controlling the game, but not in an emphatic fashion. They're doing it in a drive-through Kansas fashion. What was your first moment where you felt like, okay, here come the champs? Like this is excellent question. Beginning of the third quarter, so I think it was a nine-point game, seven or nine-point game. So Jokic hits that three to end the half. That, that was mine, right? Because as you're shorthanded without Halliburton. Again, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You're talking about three points. Because you're thinking to yourself, they need to be at least up 10 right, at the half, correct. right? You're up 11 yeah. if he doesn't knock that in, and then yeah. he does, and you Fair. don't get a shot late. And then it's eight, and it's like, okay, now this third quarter suddenly means a heck of a lot more than it might have if you're up 11. That's probably mental more than anything, but from a momentum standpoint, it felt like, okay, you got him down double digits, going to the locker room, and now have a great third quarter. And instead, it's... There's the first of many casual behind your head threes by Nikola Jokic that are going to matter later in this game. The um, yeah, for behind the head is a good way of describing that too, right? So the the second half gets underway and Denver, you know, cuts it down to like six, and Indiana calls a timeout, and then Rick Carlisle eventually got tossed. Lloyd Pierce takes over. Did you think? I mean, I. I from the broadcast angle they showed, it was hard for me to tell. But I get why he did what he did, like Rick getting tossed. Did you think it was a foul? Live, like there? Because the angles I saw, I, I couldn't yeah, tell I didn't either think way. It, it was bang, like bang. emphatic where I'm like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Right. He was just upset that Miles didn't get called on the previous well, possession, and the, then right before that, right. Siakam got fouled and it, they didn't call it. It was a buildup, but that Siakam yeah. play specifically is what sent it over the edge. So... He leaves, Pierce comes in, and Ben Shepard, now, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Rick Carlisle, when he was on yesterday morning with Kevin and Andy, as he does each and every Tuesday for the wake-up call with KB and Andy, he talked about, did Carlisle, the the fact that Jarris Walker, Andy asked the question about Walker and Ben Shepard playing more, and he said they've earned more playing time. And Rick Carlisle said, you just said the key word, they've earned it. And clearly, Ben Shepard last night gets in the game because they feel that he's earned those minutes. Now, Walker was kind of a peculiar DMP, but Shepard gets in, and I thought two key things happened in that game that kind of summarized the good and the bad, the yin and the yang of the game last night with Denver. The first being Ben Shepard comes in and he's out there and you know you're still kind of feeling your way through who the player that was their second pick in the draft but still a first rounder out of Belmont and, and a four-year guy. What we know is that Chad Buchanan and the Pacers brass have said all along that the great thing about him is on the practice floor He's going to outwork everybody and that even the veterans are going to come in and go, man, that guy's still working hard. Like I need to be in here and raise my game because he's making me look bad. And that's pretty much what he did when he got on the floor last night. His energy level, just under five minutes to go in the game, he had essentially a steal that got away from him. He's diving on the on the floor. He There's a loose ball. Just when like this, you loved his energy and the crowd's getting excited about it, the play kind of settled itself out and Denver retained possession. And then out of nowhere, Shepard gets a steal anyway, goes in and hits a very unorthodox layup and an and one. And all of the emotion, 
all of the frustration perhaps of sitting and waiting for his time, all of the anxiety, all of the impatience of waiting your turn as an NBA player erupts out of him. And that entire bench, Halliburton, who's in street clothes, Miles Turner, Isaiah Jackson, the guys that were on the floor, the guys that were off the out of the game, literally like the entire roster comes out and is meeting him and lifting him up at midcourt like in this celebration. You, you know what I mean? It was it literally looked like J Mac from ESPN like ten years ago. And then later he hit a three that gave them the lead, and you're like, here we go. I mean, this is do we have the the Ben Shepherd three, Eddie, that that he hit last night? See if you can hear like the eruption of the crowd last night when Ben Shepard hit a corner three on a rotation. Here we go. 23 for Jokic. That ends the 10-point pacer run. Denver back up two, and now Nemhart through multiple defenders. Bounces it to Shepard. A three out of the far corner. I mean, that place went bonkers. But late in the game, Jimmy, what really sealed it was in the possession. It was one of the final possessions for Denver where you know the Pacers had a couple of opportunities to chip away. And the game-sealing three for Jokic, Lloyd Pierce keeps Shepard out there, and would they have been better served with somebody, maybe, that's a more veteran player, maybe. It will turn out to be invaluable. I know that Miles Turner, technically speaking, Jokic is his guy, but Turner got kind of caught in a rotation, and truth be told, Ben Shepard should have rotated over and gotten into Jokic and put a hand up, but he was worried about Caldwell Pope. Which is not an unreasonable thing Correct. to not be worried about, but like, you know who's probably taking that shot with how much time was left in the game. But it reminds, here's the thing, um... It reminds me of like Rob Morris when he was with the Colts. I remember the the Tampa Bay Monday Night Miracle game. There was a play where Keenan McCardell, I think it was, caught a touchdown pass for Tampa, and Rob Morris was alone on an island running him down, and people were like, Rob Morris is terrible. But if you ask the players, they're like, well, no, actually, that wasn't even Rob Morris's assignment. He was the one guy that was trying to make up for it. Miles Turner last night, I think, because of the way that that play started, Miles Turner becomes the scapegoat. But in reality, he's in the shot because he's rotating over to help out in an area that wasn't necessarily in that moment his responsibility. So I just went back and rewatched that Jokic three you're talking about. Jamal Murray receives a screen from Jokic at the hash mark, and both Neesmith and Turner go out to double team him. And Ben Shepard's caught in like no man's land between Jokic and Contavious Caldwell Pope. Right. And he sees Turner coming back, so he slides back down to get on Contavious to prevent the catch and shoot three. And then I think he Mile thinks Miles over- is going to come out. Correct. Right? Mile over rotates because he Miles is going to Contavious because he thinks uh, Shepard's going to step up and defend Jokic. Um, back to Ben Shepard, who in that moment probably aired right, but he start he started to show a little bit of that energy and that defensive awareness that is why Indiana invested in him with that second first round pick here's Rick Carlisle talking about Ben Shepard getting on the floor his contributions last night every time he goes in any game whether it's a Mad Ants game or a Pacers game or a pickup game somewhere in Nashville I mean the guy 
plays the same way. You know, he's a relentless competitor. His his energy is boundless. He brings an exuberance to the game that that helps the team. And you know, he he was terrific in the game at Phoenix. Thought it was really really terrific in the in the Sacramento game and, and again tonight. So you know, he's making a case for more minutes. Now, T.J. McConnell is kind of a fan favorite in that same regard, right? Uh, got a huge hand last night, ovation. He brings the same kind of energy, and I think most people see T.J. McConnell as just kind of the overall uh, elder statesman of the team, if you will, and kind of a coach-on-the-floor type, which is why people in Indiana, of all places, would love him. But he had great things to say about Ben Shepard as well. Yeah, I mean, I just think we turned up the pressure offensively and defensively. Ben Shepard, very proud. I'm very proud of him. Gave us a spark, and I mean that's how you got to play. Just to see him do that and get the crowd into it, very happy for him and big time minutes from him tonight. Yeah, so Shepard gave him a spark, but Jimmy wasn't enough. But now you turn around and not a whole lot of time to dwell on it because you got Philly in town and Joel Embiid. And is it is it like would he be offended if I said he reminds me of the Sinclair dinosaur? Joel Embiid. You know what he reminds me of? The dinosaur from Sinclair? A fish out of water. <laughs> okay. Dude, it's 300 pounds and he gets flicked by a guy who's 180 and you would think he's just... He's a flopper? Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Well done. Well done. But he plays like a goldfish, right? He just he doesn't seem to remember the last play. <laughs> Look, I mean, nice come Ted on. Lasso reference there. This is... I get it's a difficult stretch. I understand that where the pieces fall in the standings right now... The Pacers are still probably going to be in good shape, even if this is a stretch of the schedule where you look back and say, oh, they dropped five in a row, or they dropped six of seven without Tyrese Halliburton. But at the same time, this is also a area for this bench to further solidify itself as being a not just a valuable piece, but a piece that the Pacers can continue to rely on like they have all season. And for Pacers fans that are worried or doom scrolling about the Siakam trade. It's going to take time in the right now without Tyrese Halliburton. And it's going to take some time once they finally share the court together on a more consistent basis. But based on what you saw from this team through whatever, 30, 40 games prior to this trade to what you think you're going to see once they're together, Siakam is going to make them a better team than they were before the trade happens. But what was the one thing we said about him when the trade happened? Why didn't it work anymore in Toronto? Because his numbers have dropped, especially from an efficiency standpoint on the offensive end, every year post-Kawhi. And when the Pacers look at Pascal Siakam, they don't look at that as fully, well, father time, he's about to turn 30, that's just what happens in this league. They look at it as there has not been a playmaker like Kawhi Leonard alongside him since. And as good as the Pacers are from a bench standpoint, as selfless as they are, as much praise we want to give TJ McConnell and Andrew Nemhard and Aaron Neesmith, they're not Tyrese Halliburton. So in order to get a fair judgment of what this team is moving forward, it can't be made until reps are had with Halliburton and Siakam. And I think when those reps are had, it's going to be a force to be reckoned with. You know, the um, with Siakam, you could, you could visually see times where he was kind of looking around like where 
okay, well, like who's helping me out here? Like it, at one point I saw he, he got the ball, he's down on the low block, he's backing up, and I think Jokic slid over. And so he's like, you could tell Siakam's like, okay, I know that I'm supposed to like rotate this ball, but but I'm not sure exactly where it goes. Whereas when you watch Buddy Heald's really good at this. Buddy Heald and Nimhart both are really good at like as soon as they get doubled, they know exactly where the ball is going to go. Siakam, in his defense, I mean, he's like, I don't know these dudes. It's like when you're visiting somebody's house and they tell you, yeah, make yourself at home. Well, but it's not it's not my house. Right, right. Where, where, where is the line? Right. What what are the nuances of this place? Did you ever play pickup ball at the Hyper? Yes. Or whatever yes. it was called yeah, yeah, by yeah, the time you were out the Hyper, yeah, yeah. So... I always got a kick out of this at the hyper. You'd go and play pickup ball at the hyper, and it's pickup ball, R- literally. Like maybe one guy from like a class you have, you're like, hey, you want to go play some hoops, or a guy in your dorm floor, your fraternity, whatever. So you got may- maybe one or two guys that you know, and then you just pick up three other dudes, and you're like, okay, you know, we're going out there, and this is your team, right? And you always had like five guys that lived on the same dorm floor together that had like they'd literally been sitting on like read floor three doing <laughs> walkthroughs and running set plays at the hyper and you're like what are you doing here like literally okay so all five of you guys were the starting five at blackford two years ago congratulations <laughs> you're out here running set plays and schooling everybody at the hyper at Indiana University, and I'm just here to get some exercise and put a couple shots up. Indiana, yeah, you know Indiana, what I mean? they're just holding up the motions. They're yeah, double screens, totally. Kind of and you're like, screen on the right side, and that's that's kind of what Pascal Siakam last night looked like. The guy that was on the team yeah. that just had like the random dudes from his dorm floor. He's like, I don't know. I just met these guys because two of them have a a, a Sega system and one had a car. That's how we became friends. We were all watching Judge Judy together in the common area before by the way i came in to watch jeopardy at 4 30 which i'd already watched earlier on the lawrence and hustled everybody for their money Prepare to <laughs> that's that's what they were playing in the dorm room uh by the way rhett lewis coming up and he's going to do so in about 10 minutes now here's the thing it would be my hope that if you like me you also like jmv i would think that anybody that thinks that jmv sucks think that I saw I like I don't know that's a good like do you think there are people that think that that we suck and love JMV or vice versa or do you think it's all encompassing I would think in today's society that it could very well be that there's personal preferences and there's there's hate can somebody give us a call at 239-1070 and let us know if based on that between us and JMV if they if they like if they have a an acquired taste versus the other, is that is something I, we want to get into? <laughs> I think we know the reality. People actually probably call it. No, nah, I think you suck. Okay, I mean J and B's made an entire brand off people telling him he sucks, right? See, but regardless if it's you suck or oh we love you, if you're taking the time to call in either way. That means you're listening, and that's all that. All I mean, that of course, that's. Listen, we love everybody, right? I'll take the hate listen and the love listen. Either way, I want to thank Jan for letting me know on social media when we were talking about Indiana State because it is a mental hurdle for me. I there is one one place that I have like challenges, and sometimes it's name pronunciations that throw me off. And Jan pointed out to me that that it's Robbie Avula. Robbie Avula is how you say it for Indiana State. I hope that's right, Jan. That's from Jan 
0601812542008 which I would normally think is a bot but clearly Jam was listening earlier so I appreciate that. Robbie Avula which considering that his name is A V I L A it just sounds it, it just looks weird. And every and literally I will ask that 10,000 times every time we reference him I will forget which way you pronounce it. Avula you got now, that? Avula. Now, if, but if JMV pushes back, I got to defer to JMV in that, right? I mean, <laughs> depends on whether you, because you like him, but you think <laughs> I suck, right? Isn't that what we've learned? I think so. I think our phones are foobar again from yesterday. Eddie's over there throwing one of them around. <laughs> Did you, do you think Eddie- I don't know what's happening, but Eddie's, Eddie's now jump roping with wires. James has walked in. James, JMV's producer, has walked in, and now all of a sudden, he too is mesmerized by Eddie, who looks like the guy in airplane with the phones <laughs> wired, and he's Annie M. It's a twister. It's a twister. Eddie reminds <laughs> me of somebody like go back to the '90s of just trying to look for something at Radio Shack. Like I oh, would just got to throw a couple <laughs> totally. of things together here or there, and, and it's gonna work. All I can <laughs> see, all I can see on my screener is is like it looks like a Christmas tree of phones lighting up, and Eddie Eddie currently is holding the handset <laughs> of the phone, I the can headset, pick it up. with no wire to it. I can pick it up. But nobody, I can't talk to anyone. You know, he he picked up a banana phone the last time I looked over there. So Seriously, I, don't know. I, have, I have no idea. There, there, there's, so we're a, we're a again just to repeat, we are a sports radio program that is a, a essentially a talk show where only we talk because the phones we have no way of of actually communicating with people, right? Eddie, Eddie is now. Eddie, Eddie has wires that are unplugged. I'm just what, waiting for Eddie to pull up a toolbox. What, what, what are we doing over there? Are we launching missiles in in like Lebanon right now? What are we doing? Do we know? No, we've no idea. Okay. Well, if you're in Germany and somebody keeps hanging up on you, we apologize. Rhett Lewis is next. Welcome back to Query and Company. NFL Conference Championship Weekend around the corner. The countdown, of course, has already started towards. April's draft and the Colts and the need to build around rookie quarterback Anthony Richardson. Joining us, one of our favorites. He covers all things NFL for NFL Network as a host over there, as well as a part of Sirius XM and analyst on IU Football Radio Network. Rhett Lewis joins us. Rhett, how are you? Sorry about that. I hear you. I was uh, I was had, had myself on mute there. A little Zoom habit. How are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Rhett, first question. It's random, but it's about the mock drafts. <laughs> Okay. The past couple years, at least based on your bio and the articles they attach to you on NFL Network, it's always just the 1.0, and it's in April. <laughs> now, obviously, you're you're studying across the board and you're following everything, but is that because right. mock draft season is the chaotic what it is, and you just want the one-off because hey, it's a week or two or maybe a day or two before the draft. This is my final thought, or why? Why? Why just the 1.0? <laughs> well, um. You know, I, I do like having the, the final word on it, you know, in dra- during draft week. Although last year they did force me to do it a little bit earlier. Um, but I, you know what? It's just uh, if we want to keep things special, right? Want to keep things unique, want to keep things real. You know, if you got six different mock drafts, you probably got six different scenarios of how the whole thing's going to go. And so. You know, you're either um, you're either playing up, you know, all the different possibilities so that you can always point back to one of them and say, look, I told you I got it right. Um, whereas, you know, I, I like having just one shot at it. You know, let's uh, let's see. Let's see how good we can get with it. And usually I'm not that great at it, but it, it's a it's a crapshoot, man. I, I do enjoy the mock drafts, though. I really do. Brett, with where Indianapolis is drafting, 
Yeah. And the fact that by that I mean, and I I, I think that it's the 18th. Is that where they are? Uh, oh gosh, 15, yeah, 15. 15, right 15 Okay, there. so 15th. So with Indianapolis drafting 15th, Rhett, they, what player or what position, let's just say hypothetically that they go best player available. I don't think that's going to be the case, but let's say they go best player available. There's going to be a run on what position and that would allow for you to get perhaps still the very best first choice at what position around 15? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question because it's a real intriguing spot. Um, as I'm uh, as I'm looking, you know, as I've been looking at the draft orders and all this, I I think you could get a real run on quarterbacks right before the Colts come off the board. So I think the quarterbacks are going to go one, two, three, uh, and it'll be you know Caleb Williams, uh, Drake May, Jaden Daniels, in some order there, and then I think you could legitimately get another three of them off the board before the 16th pick, considering the- where the yeah, the Colts are probably be hoping for that, right? The Colts are probably thinking, hey, load up, right? Load up. We're good here, and this is going to allow us to get a, a better positional player, if you will, in that case. And, you know, you, you could get a scenario where, you know, one of those top edge rushers, you know, falls down there, layoff to, lot to, uh, you know, you can never get after the quarterback enough. Um, even though you know the Colts have done pretty well in that uh, in that regard here recently, but you can't you know can't have enough good edge rushers in this league. And then I really think you're going to start to kick off a run on tackles right there. Um, I've been talking with my buddies Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks uh, all week on the Move the Six podcast, and you know the one thing that we have talked about a bunch as an overriding theme is this is going to this year could probably will probably break the record for the number of offensive tackles that get drafted in the first round Uh, at this point we see eight going off the board in the first 32 picks Um, also feel like that could very well be you know a spot um, where you know teams look because of the strength of that position you know guys that if you have a tackle who you feel good about but not great it may offer you an opportunity to either try to kick that player inside, move them off to the right side, or just upgrade in general um, because there is real strength at that position. Otherwise, I think you really got to look at the wide receivers there. Brian Thomas is available from LSU. Uh, you know, depending on what happens with Michael Pittman in the offseason, I think that could be a real choice for the Colts too. Now, I isn't there also a wide receiver out of Florida State that's supposed to go around that that time frame? Yeah, Keon Coleman. Yep, Keon Coleman, big body guy, transferred in from Michigan State. Um, definitely has you know great ball skills. It, it does kind of represent like a Michael Pittman type body, if you will. I think maybe just a, a touch more explosive, perhaps. But yeah, definitely could see Keon Coleman in that range. This year in this draft, Rhett Lewis, you are if you are in the market for what position would you be most in trouble in other words the position that offers you the least if it's what you're looking for this year i think it's safety uh i I don't think we're going to see a ton of safeties go off the board early i don't know that i've seen any go off the board in the first 32 picks at this point again it's early you could have some guys really shine in the all-star game settings which are coming up here this week uh and in fact just looking at the way that the senior bowl in particular handled the safety position they went and got a ton of the underclassmen that came out and there's not a lot of underclassmen period that came out this year, about half as many as we normally normally see, which really hurts the depth of the class overall, not just on day three, but on day two as well, like rounds two and three. And so I think the safety position is one where that, um, where the the depth of this class is not big. Um, I don't know that this is a, a, a super strong linebacker class, like off the ball linebacker class, 
Um, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's a, a, a Shaq Leonard, you know, floating around there in the second round. Uh, although I'd love if I was the Colts, get my hands on a great Indiana Hoosier Aaron Casey somewhere, uh, maybe late day two, early day three. I was going to be playing in the Shrine Bowl with a great player in the Big Ten. Uh, just a, a couple of thoughts on that front for you, Jake. Rhett Lewis is our guest of NFL Network. You can follow him on Twitter at RhettNFL. Jake just asked you a second ago about offensive tackles and premium positions yeah. of where there's going to be potentially a lot of availability, but oftentimes, whether it's a clear need like a tackle or whether it's a clear want like a stellar wide receiver, that's the discussions that go on in those war rooms, especially in the first and second round. What are you doing? Are you battling for need or are you battling for the high upside luxury pick that, that you just want to have? You feel like you can build an offense around. When you look at that ebb and flow between teams that are in the top 10 versus the prospects that are there. Is it wide receiver once again that has the most eye candy of, oh, we don't necessarily need that, but boy, would we want it on our team. Yeah, I, I think um, I think wide receiver is definitely a, a deal there. Like I think you know we talked about quarterbacks going one two three, which certainly feels like that's the way that this is going to go as of right now. I think you could legitimately see wide receivers go four five six, and you're talking about Marvin Harrison Jr., Roma Dunze, and Malik Neighbors. That's how good they are. Um, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Brock Bowers check in at some point there just because of the immense athleticism and kind of versatile skill set that he provides from a tight end spot for teams really put placing a value on that position. So certainly, certainly wouldn't mind seeing him, you know, go up there in the top 10 as well. Um, but I do think you'll see the three quarterbacks. I think you'll see those three wide receivers. And then I think you'll see two to three tackles and probably Dallas Turner, the edge rusher from Alabama, all go in the top 10. Rhett Lewis of NFL Network is our guest. Rhett, you bring up Brock Bowers, and again, for those that don't know, for the most part, unless it's from you, unless from Daniel Jeremiah, like guys like that, mocks are usually tools. They're good off-season exercises. They aren't necessarily predictions. But in the early stage, as I'm trying to navigate through all of these, I've seen Brock Bowers go as high as a top-five pick. I've seen him towards the 15 to 20 range. Is that Mm -hmm. more needs of the teams that are there based on these mocks that are being run or is it there's just other position groups like wideout that might just be too good to pass on where if you're a team in that 12 to 20 range or 12 to 18 range you might find a gem of a tight end and I realize I'm asking the question that we've lost Rhett so anyway we'll get it back in a second but Jake that's what fascinates me the most with Brock Bowers because it was brought up by James Boyd I've heard it brought up by other people that follow the Colts I've said it the idea of having a perennial tight end or a tight end you can develop into a clear tight end one would be very tempting if he was there because it feels like with Goddard and others that's how Shane Steichen would like to use a tight end I'm really curious to see you know and and interesting because Rhett does IU football obviously you know Bill Mallory's grandson Will Mallory I I, I really am curious with what he did last Mm -hmm. year to see how he develops for them because you get the sense they want that too I do kind of. I I just I think that they. I get the feeling at the tight end position, that. By the way, I so so I'm trying to talk about the tight ends, and all, and all I can hear over here is Eddie. Eddie is like Fred Flintstone. He's like got a like a granite thing over here, and he's chiseling away at the phone. Okay, he's working tirelessly to fix the phone, and he's having to like take it apart. But no, I do feel like. They they went through rotation of different tight ends, 
and Mallory was the one that brought one thing that was different than the rest of the tight end room a little bit in terms of his receiving ability. But Rhett is back, so go ahead. Yeah, we, Rhett, we have you back. With Brock, we're back, baby. We're back and better than ever. With Brock Bowers, what would cause him to fall? Team need other position groups like wide receiver that would push him down? I know there's unpredictability of all this, but why would Brock Bowers have such a wild range at this point in the process based on mocks alone? Well, I think part of it is value um, in terms of like financially. I mean, like that's a big contract up there in the top 10. You know what I mean? Like relatively speaking in terms of rookies and, you know, how does that fit within, you know, your roster's contract structure, right? Like, do you, you know, are you a team that's already paying 45 to 50 million for a quarterback? Maybe you can't spend that type of money on a tight end spot, you know, knowing you've got a wide receiver coming up in a year or two, you know, I think, I, I think those things do kind of come into consideration, um, you know, there with a, with a player like, like he is. I mean, he, look, he's a great player and I think he's worthy of a, of a pick at number five, um, you know, or I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see him go, you know, in the 15th thinking about, you know, historically TJ Hawkinson, you know, was a top 10 pick as a tight end and, you know, took him a, a year two, three to really find his stride. Now he's one of the best in the league uh, on his second team playing for the Vikings. So like, you know, we had a really good tight end class last year and like, look at what Sam Laporta's done and look at where he got drafted right in the second round. So I, I think like there are some historical things you look at. There's some logistical things you look at in terms of finances, but the, the athleticism and the player and the productivity, you know, you, you can't deny it with ours. Brett Lewis is our guest. I know it's a busy afternoon, so I appreciate the time yeah. from NFL Network. Brett, before we let you go, I want to get your thoughts yeah. because you do do IU football on the radio on these airwaves. Yeah. Kurt Signetti, uh, not shy on confidence. Your thoughts on the hire? <laughs> I, I will second that, uh, that statement right there, Jake. I mean, that is the one thing that is clear. And you know what? He's got a record to back it up. You know, he has been successful – everywhere he has been. Now say what you want about the level of competition and all that, but the fact that he can find ways to resurrect in some cases programs like what he did at Elon uh, and make them winning programs, I mean, speaks to what we need, what we are talking about here with the Hoosiers. I think it's going to be, you know, it's a stark contrast in style. And, and look, you know, uh, Tom Allen style, maybe not for everybody. Kurt Zignetti style, maybe not for everybody. But for those that fit what Coach Sig is selling and will buy into it, uh, I, I think you're going to have a great chance to see a winner here, like really quickly. Like this does not – he's not around here to wait three years to get this team to a bowl game, to get this program to a bowl well, game. Well, he dipped in the portal to begin and that – I mean, first got to recruit your roster, but he got some guys in, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we're talking about over 20 different guys that have come in from different schools around the country, a lot of them from James Madison, uh, including Elijah Surratt, uh, who was, you know, highly sought after uh, wide receiver from the – I think his wide receiver room is going to be incredible. Uh, getting Donovan McCauley back, getting Carter Smith back, and getting uh, Trent Howland back as well. Like, those were three of probably the top four guys that you wanted back from the portal um, that ended up uh, – you know, and Khalil Benson was probably one of those two, but he ended up going to Colorado. So I think they did a great – Great job kind of mixing, you know, getting some of the key contributors from last year back, bringing in fresh faces that are ready to compete and ready, you know, to display that toughness and that will to win that he's really talking about. This is, I, I think there's a lot to like. Let me just tell you one other thing. <clears throat> um, the coaching staff, I think, you know, there was a lot said, uh, you know, when 
he was making the hires and announcing them. I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of guys from JMU, a lot of Sun Belt, a lot of Group of Five. I'm like, I'm telling you what, I've had the chance personally to speak um, with our, our DC, our, our OC, Mike Shanahan, and quarterbacks coach Chino Sinceri. Those dudes are super impressive. Like, we're going to be lucky to keep Tino Sinceri around. Like, that's as a quarterback's coach and co-offensive coordinator, um, he's going to be sought after because of how well he's going to do here. And, and both those, you know, Coach Shanahan, Coach, uh, Coach Gaines, too, like, th- those guys are um, – Coach Haynes, excuse me. They're, they're studs. So I'm, I'm excited about what he's building. Feels like exciting times being built yeah. down at IU. He's Rhett Lewis. You hear him for IU football. It's color analyst over there, of course, Sirius XM and on NFL Network. Rhett, appreciate your time as always. Looking forward to the countdown to Rhett Lewis 1.0 on the mock draft. And yeah, no doubt we will have you on uh, many a time Let's or two between now and April. All right, guys. Have a good one. Here's a question for you. Eddie, I'm going to need you to pull up a list for me on this because we're going to test ourselves coming off that football conversation. He mentioned James Madison. Players coming from Indiana. Of course, Kurt Signetti coming from James Madison. My buddy Doug Weiler, when I lived in New York City, I was an intern and I lived at NYU Housing while living in New York City My after my junior year of college. By far the greatest experience of my life. And the NYU housing was a bunch of just kids from across the country that were all interning in New York City in different capacities. And one of my buddies that I became friends with, Doug Weiler, went to James Madison. And, I, and I'm so embarrassed to this day, and it was just like a momentary brain fade. I said to him, I go, now who, ex- who was James Madison? And he's like, yeah, dude, the president of the United States. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I not know that? But I kind of admittedly get him confused, historically speaking, with James Monroe and John Adams and John Quincy Adams and whatever else. So, Eddie, I need you to find for me the list of U.S. presidents. If you had to guess off the top of your head, and I don't know the answer to this, Jimmy, I'm going to go with, I believe, what what number of president was James Madison? Lord. What do you want me to look up again? The list of U.S. presidents. Okay. I mean, obviously, you know, Washington's number one. Right. right? I... Washington, Wise. Adams, Jefferson, you know the big three, right? Jackson. Jackson would would have been... I think he was... Andrew Jackson was fourth. No. Andrew right? Jackson was in the 1800s. I would put it somewhere uh, in the James 20s Madison on ignorance. If I'm way off on that, I'm going to remove myself. Eddie just buried the lead. Eddie just, Eddie okay, just four. gave yeah, it to so us. Yeah, they way off. Killed the lead. Uh, four? Yeah. Okay, so then what was Monroe? Five? Yes. Van, Van Buren was seven, right? Eight. Eight. Andrew Eight. Jackson sorry. was seven. Andrew Jackson was seven? Yeah. Okay, so Van Buren was eight. I thought Andrew Jackson was – what I, year was Andrew Jackson? 1829 I had a buddy on my floor freshman year that could recite it all. Well, I think a lot of kids ease. learn that, right? And I get very confused. Then you get in the fat bearded guy era, and then all bets are off. <laughs> when you get into Chester Arthur, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, uh, you know, Millard Fillmore um, – William Howard Taft, like those guys are all the same guy, right? They're, they're all just big, fat, bearded guys. But but Monroe, I, for whatever reason, and I, probably people listening are like, what an idiot this guy is. Van Buren, I know, I thought seven, but it's eight. I know that from the Van Buren boys on Seinfeld. You're not an idiot. Sorry. I just suggest that James Madison was the 20th president of the United States, so I think you're fine. But no, I, mean, I, think, Jake, I think you're good. Honestly, like it's, I mean, they kind of, you know, Calvin Coolidge. What number was Calvin Coolidge? I'm going to go Calvin Coolidge would have been, let's just guess here, okay, uh, 22. Jimmy, you got to guess? No. 
You gotta have a guess. Come on. Nineteen. Thirty. Okay, so I was early. Calvin Coolidge, by the way, was known as Silent Cal. He barely spoke. His most famous moment was when he went to a charity dinner and he sat down and a guy said, oh my gosh, I am so excited because I have a bet with my wife and my wife bet me that I, could, that I couldn't get you to say more than two words. And I promised her that I in fact could. And Calvin Coolidge looked at him and said, you lose. That name just sounds so fake. Calvin Coolidge? Doesn't even sound real. Yeah. Uh, C squared is what his friends called him. So, okay, it's, it's, it sounds like a uh, like a starting two now, guard for a national my, championship team. It kind of does, doesn't <laughs> yep. it? Now, my other question that I've asked you guys this before, and I am certain that I know the answer on this. I, I mentioned it the other day because I had a sweatshirt on. Oh no, I remember this question. But go on. Who is the most obscure president? Who is the least known U.S. president? I was about to say Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> I would I would take this to the phone lines, but we know how that drill is going to go. Um, I, I think it's got to be like I'll give you a name, Jimmy, and you tell me if it's a president or a guy I went to high school with. You ready? Oh, this is great. Yep. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Um, Benjamin Morrison. High school. That is correct. Um, Franklin Pierce president that is correct from new hampshire i told the story about his tombstone um can i cash out now no i'll give you i'll give you two more okay. real quick right. you ready okay. william bentley high school correct and lastly um chester arthur president yeah i just mentioned him he's a fat guy era i think chester arthur or or franklin pierce are the two most obscure presidents who would you say eddie you're looking at the list uh calvin coolidge would be right there i had really? no idea he was even a president silent cow yeah, he was pretty nondescript for sure. But any of those three guys, yeah, 100%. If you ever go to the Football Hall of Fame, folks, you go right around the corner and you can find the um, the, the tomb of William McKinley. If you're in Marion, Ohio, which is where when we go to the Mid-Ohio sports car race, uh, we stay in Marion, Ohio. The most At the time of his passing, the largest federal fund in terms of the amount of money given for a monument in the united states was for the building of william or excuse me of warren harding's tomb warren harding's tomb in in marion ohio is absolutely gorgeous for the teapot dome scandaled president who was mired in controversy but his his tomb is i mean it's opulent but it's beautiful marble right in marion ohio it's beautiful warren harding would be up there too would you have known warren harding jimmy I probably would. I believe guessed. in Die Hard. They go to. They have to go rescue Warren Harding Elementary School. Of the names I would like to submit, of names that I would have been, I probably would have said president just because of that's a weird name, but one that would have gotten lost, I would think, would be Millard Fillmore. Oh yeah, Millard. There was a comic strip called Mallard Fillmore for years. Millard Fillmore, I believe, is the one. Um, I think it's Millard Fillmore that was born in New York, went to law school, and I went to his birthplace out in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. And like I got there and literally there was like a park bench. It was like, we believe on this site, Millard Fillmore was born. I'm like, really? That's it? I thought that was the name of a Cars character. What's that? <laughs> Millard? Fillmore. I got to tell you guys, I've never felt more old in my life, by the way. Uh, Eddie had a good question about the Pacers and their roster. We'll get into that next. <laughs> by the way, <clears throat> that is Paul the Mailman. How about? 
a healthy, happy, rounded, and enthusiastic happy birthday to the other Paul the Mailman, my buddy Paul Hurley, 60 years old today. Woo. 60 years old for Paul. And he had mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, the – I can't remember what we were talking about, actually, but he said, first off, <clears throat> 60 degrees on his 60th day. You got to love that, right? For sure. Uh, I know what it was. We mentioned earlier in the program, Rick Fusen uh, retiring with the Pacers. His father, Wayne Fusen, of course, of the Indianapolis News, and Paul mentioned Wayne Fusen was the first person to hire Paul in his freelance photography at the Indianapolis 500 back some time ago. But um, but Rick Fusen retiring today. That announcement came just before we came on the air, as a matter of fact. Mel Raines will take over as CEO for the Pacers on June 18th. So Rick Fusen, who was brought in initially to help out with the 1985 All-Star Game, now will retire after the All-Star Game returns to Indianapolis. In terms of the Pacers roster, Eddie, you had a good question earlier, which would be, as the trade deadline looms, we're about two weeks away, Yep. what players would be off-limits, what players would you be open for business, and what players, I guess, would you most actively uh, think could be still in the hopper or in the mix in terms of a trade for Indiana. Did you see Kevin Pritchard's tweet to Magic Johnson that yesterday? That was great. <clears throat> nice job, Chad. I actually now, – now, you want to know my unpopular opinion? What, I thought he should have laid that opinion? one out. So what happened, for those that didn't see it, is that Magic Johnson sent a tweet that said Indiana did a great job in trading for, I'm paraphrasing, trading for Pascal Siakam and kudos to Pacers general manager Chad Buchanan. And Kevin Pritchard quote tweeted it and put, yeah, great trade, Chad, like uh-huh, like a like a throat there. Um, I'll be honest, everybody knows Kevin Pritchard's probably the one that executed that trade. I think you lay that one out and you, you let Chad Buchanan – like, it kind of usurps Chad Buchanan, I think, personally. Saying it that way kind of is like, uh, don't kid yourself. He's our GM, but he doesn't do stuff. I, I do that. That's how it looked to me. Oh, I think there's two sides to that, right? Either you see it that way, which is fair. You see it in the middle, or you see it the extreme other way, which would be, well, like the relationship between Pritchard and Buchanan is what it is, and that's just having fun with the Hall of Fame. No, I, I get it. I mean, he's it's it's tongue-in-cheek right, for sure. It's tongue-in-cheek yeah. for sure, but like it just... It's kind of like it, it. Kind of a little bit looked like a guy that was a little worried about somebody getting his praise falsely. You know what I mean? But if you were still and Kevin Pritchard's very good at trades, no doubt about it. Which is part of the reason why everybody knew that that he was the one behind that one because he's he's got a good track record with it. But if you were to look at the Pacers roster right now, and we're going to go in three categories here, okay? You've got to give me two names each. Give me two names that you would consider off limits if you were in charge. We're taking Tyrese Halliburton and Pascal Siakam out of the equation. Siakam you just acquired, and Tyrese Halliburton we know isn't going anywhere. So aside from those two, you've got to come up, gentlemen, with three categories. Category one is your two pieces that you are letting people know you're open for business for that might actually get you some fetch back. Category two is two guys that you are totally fine with dealing and probably you most actively would be shopping. And then 
Category three is two guys that under no way, shape, or form would you deal them. And you're like, nope, sorry, they're not going anywhere. Can we have crossovers? Like, not in terms of mine and Eddie's list, but can we have players in both category camps? Or once they're used, are they done? Well, you, I mean, I don't. Obviously, if you have one, you're actively shopping. They're not on your no deal list. Right. I meant more the first two. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so give me, give me the two. Eddie, we'll begin with you. Give me two names that, first off, who are your two that are off limits? Um, I'm going with Jarris Walker and Andrew Nimhard. Okay. Eddie, your two off limits. Jarris Walker. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> Jimmy. Well done. Um, I would include Jarris Walker in there as well as Aaron Neesmith. His contract is way too valuable for where it is. I want that still on our books. Okay. The Pacers. I would go with, for my two off limits, I agree on Aaron Neesmith because he's already locked in and he is going to turn out to be an absolute steal value at his price tag. And he can guard, he can shoot. I just, I really like Aaron Neesmith and what he brings to the table. And I know that he's not, in a championship level team, he is probably somewhere between your your four or your six guy. But at that price range, even that's going to be a value. My other one, and I know that this is not going to surprise you guys at all, my other would be Isaiah Jackson. Because there's kind of a log jam now at that position, I realize. But if Jalen Smith is on an expiring, he has a player option, um, you know, Miles Turner is obviously a really good player. I just think Jackson has flexibility and versatility of where he can play. And at his, you know, he's only 22, and I think he's just starting to hit his stride. I really like him. Um, two guys that you are, if somebody says, look, we, we, this is who we want, you're like, yeah, I'm cool with that. No, no worries, no issue if you lose them. Eddie? So these would be like the first guys to go if you were calling someone up. Like if I called up Orlando, I was like, hey. These aren't guys that you're actively shopping to tantalize somebody. These are guys that if they said, look, we need these guys on a salary match or other such thing, you're like, okay, sure, great, have at. Uh, that'd be Buddy Heald and Obi Toppin. Okay. Uh, Jimmy? I agree with Eddie on Buddy Heald and... I would throw, not because he's not a good player, not because I don't want to retain him, I would throw Jalen Smith in there and in any trade discussion because when he declines that player option, I worry somebody's going to see what the Pacers see in him this time around and pay him money to the point that it's no longer comfortable for the Pacers to retain him. Okay, the two guys that I would go with in this, and they'll probably give you more the spirit of what I was thinking there, I'd go Kendall Brown and James Johnson. I Totally expendable, right? If somebody wants a salary right. match, have that. Now, I mean, neither one of those guys are making a ton, though. So you wouldn't be able to salary. Well, I know, but much. I'm just talking about if there are two guys that, that you just, I'm saying the two guys that, you know, when you move from one residence to the next and the stuff at the end, you have the one box where you're like, that's just the junk. I didn't even know where to put it. I just threw it in there. I, I mean, more like those guys. But, oh, okay. um, but lastly, okay, the two guys that you would actively, if you really, if there is a player that you really feel can help you. And you had to do, let's say, two guys, and we're going to take salaries out of it, but just in terms of two players that you think could get a decent fetch back that you're willing to part with that most would be surprised because they are active players on your roster. Your two would be who, Eddie? Benedict Matherin. Isaiah Jackson. 
Okay. Jimmy? This is where the crossover happened. Buddy healed. I feel like there's a contender that would want his three-point shooting capabilities. I don't know what he's going to want in the offseason. I think there'll be interest there. And then kind of an off-the-board one, Andrew Nemhard. He is underneath team control still for another two seasons, and the salary is very cheap. But I'm curious with how this Pacers team evolves, if his value or upside based on that price point is going to be any higher than it is right now. And I feel like there would be a suitor out there that would be interested in his services, not just for his play on the floor, but for what I just outlined, a cheap, team-friendly deal that's underneath your books if you make that move. I agree with, and here is an... I agree with Eddie on one of them. It seems to me, and I know I like his game. I like him. I think that we have an eagerness at sometimes to label guys too early. And I think sometimes we is anoint the word I'm looking for players prematurely. And it's almost sometimes at no fault of the player, but it becomes a bit of a detriment. I think that Benedict Matherin is a really talented guy. I think Benedict Matherin has a unique ability to get to the basket and use his body to, at the very least, get himself to the free throw line. His outside shooting, to me, still leaves a little to be desired. I like his competitiveness. And his drive, for sure. And when he first came into the league, it was like, this guy's unbelievable. Last, I mean, like, this is the guy. We were so eager at all times to be like, this is the guy. And we now know that the guy is Tyrese Halliburton. I think we've seen enough of Matherin to know that while he is a very good player and just 21 years old and may well be an elite player Maybe elite's a little high, but well be a very good player in the league for a long time. I go back to, and you know I'm big on precedent, and I know I'm going in the way back here. But when the Pacers had Chuck Person, he was rookie of the year. He was a a big-bodied three that was kind of thick, that could shoot straight on. It was a really good shooter, especially a lightning-in-a-bottle shooter, and had good size, could back people down. And then they drafted Reggie Miller the next year, and you wondered how those two would play alongside one another. And eventually they figured out, okay, we've got to actually get a point guard for Reggie Miller, and Reggie Miller is a a more reliable outside shooter. So they used person to flip to get auxiliary pieces for Reggie Miller. And decided Reggie was the guy they were going with. I feel like that's where they are right now. That Halliburton they know is the piece and that they need auxiliary complementary pieces around him. And Matherin would be Chuck Person in this equation. And while a very good player, I think just plays a different style than where this franchise is headed in the way that they're going to play. I could be totally wrong in that. And and I, I think I, just I, think I don't that- think in any way, shape, or form they're looking to shop him, but I think that if there was a young piece that they would dangle that they would think is expendable, it would be Matherin. If that's a move that you make, 
and assuming I'm still playing the category game correctly, I don't want to like take out of turn here, but if that was something they were to do, the piece that you get back would have to be the piece that suddenly makes you over the next two or three years a perennial contender totally. in the Eastern no, Conference. No, totally, yeah. Because the sure. player that Benedict Matherin still could be, in my mind, totally and I'm not agree. saying you think that this isn't the case, it's way too early for me to say 15 months into his, in terms of 15 months, terms of NBA service time, that he can't still become, like year three for me is my line. If yeah, year you're three, taking a risk there, for sure. You're, 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 right. You are taking a risk that you have seen enough to know definitively what he's going to be. But I, I do I agree that. with you. Teams for what I just laid out and what you're laying out would be interested in him because right. I think they think he's not a finished product yet. I mean, basically what it would be is, you know, you are, you are taking the risk if you flip him that you have seen the ceiling of what he could be and that somebody else that that's going to that you know that they're not going to get more than what you've already seen that's a risk for sure the other guy that i i i feel like and again i go back to log jam of position and i think he's a good player and a good teammate and he can do a lot of different things i have nothing negative to say about him except for the following at the position he plays and kind of at the depth of the of what they have at that position and just the style he plays there is a part of me that thinks that Obi Toppin is a guy that is destined to play 2 to 3 years on four different franchises over the next dozen years and I don't it's not that I think he's not a good player, but I do think that, like now with Siakam and Isaiah Jackson's emergence, and I, you know, I just I think there's a log jam there, and I think Toppin has enough flasher sexiness about him that you can turn him around, and you know, it. To me, Obi Toppin is like a. What's like a a mid-tier kind of sports car, but also could be used to like take the kids to school in the morning? You know, not not necessarily like a Camaro, but like some car that's like a little bit flashy, but also practical. It can kind of be both. An Audi? Okay, an, an Audi's a good one, right? But like if you live in, so if you have like an Audi A6, it's a nice car. It's kind of sporty, right? But although Audi's pretty ritzy. But Obi Toppin to me is that is that kind of ritzy car that's nice, but like if you live in a cold weather climate where it snows all the time, it's not very practical. And like he I think his game is exciting and flashy, but I don't know how practical it is. Because he doesn't go down to the low block and I don't know that he gives you a huge bit of defensive help. I I know that he can hit a three. He could be placed in the same bucket. His flashiness makes it feel like he's giving you more than what he is. He could be put in the same bucket that you were assigning earlier of because of the log jam, if you take him off the roster, would you feel his absence? And Exactly. That, that, that's, that's a good way diff- of saying it. That's yes. the difference between trading a player and not trading a player with where he is in his career when you have a log jam like this present. Because if you think he's going to wind up being the top dog of the pack, then you keep him. If not, you look at it, he's a restricted free agent next year. And with, again, Pacers could match that. They can do whatever they want to do. But you need to really start looking down the road of how big of a contract would you give Obi Toppin. I would argue another team, to your point, Jake, would look at him 
would look at the same things that I kind of hoped when they got him, which is New York didn't use him the right way. He's only 25. He's a lottery pick. Let's build around him. or Let's add him as a piece. There's so many names on this roster when you look at the books for the Pacers. Unrestricted, player option restricted. Doesn't matter. The conversation that has to be had is, are you interested in retaining them next offseason? And will they help you in your run to whatever the goal is this year? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, they should not be viewed as off-limits in your trade discussion. Right. If you were a restricted, if you had a player, like if you're Jalen Smith and you have a player option, how much of your thought process in exercising that option is what you're getting paid and how much of it is who's at your position and where there are openings elsewhere? If I was having what he has, which is $5 million next year, it would be what I'm getting paid. I think in today's NBA, when you look at a salary like that for how young he is and what he could potentially do and continue to develop as as a player. Yeah, he's had, a, he's had opportunity here to show, right, that he is more than what Phoenix had written off, right? Yes. So you think he would go somewhere if he's got a five, he's on the, he would be five million for them next year, right? Correct. About five, four, five and a half, roughly. Now, if you like your situation, which he clearly liked in the end of the last time when he did this deal with the player option, maybe you're okay with it getting bumped to, I'm just throwing out figures here, get bumped to 10, Versus somewhere else, maybe they give you 15. Maybe that matters enough. I don't know what the number would be, but that's where you get into of what matters culture over money based on where you're at in your career. But I would I would absolutely opt out of that player option when the year ends, and I would see what's out there if it was me. Okay, what about this? Would you rather be Jalen Smith, take your $5 million, and... and and let's say they extend him, okay, around that. And let's say he gets bumped up to like nine or ten, okay. But he knows he's going to be on a really good team, or go to Detroit and they're going to pay you twelve. Not maybe not twelve. That's double, I'd, and that's a little ridiculous. But let's say that you could make if you're Jalen Smith and the Pacers offer you a total of twenty five million over the next three years, or you could go to Detroit and make thirty two million over the next three years. Me, I would I would stay in Indy. Let me give you some context of players around that ten million a year that you're talking about. Um, Evita Zubats with the Clippers, he's at ten point nine. Uh, Al Horford is nine point seven five. Nick Claxton with Brooklyn eight point six two five. Kavan Ludi with Golden State seven and a half. Zach Collins San Antonio seven point three five. So I mean, you're looking at. Those are your typical backup centers in the NBA, and they're not making near ten million dollars. So I don't think, I don't know if Jalen Smith's worth would be ten million a year. NBA money's, I, and this is not a knock on you. This is just the debate you and I have all the time. NBA money is such monopoly money that you're right about those contracts. But somebody as young as Smith, right? That's uh, I'm I'm with Jimmy on this. His age, you know, Al Horford's ninety five years old, right? I mean, he's had his big deals. His age would be what might give yeah. him, because the, the I mean the, the the cap is just it changes so much every year, right? That's a fair I, Eddie. To be clear, I'm not trying to demean the point. I get it's a fair point, and it's good to have that for frame of reference. I just think with Zubats is 26, Claxton is 24, and with Zubac, I mean I know that was off of the was off the Lakers trade. I can't what? remember if the contract was with L A or with L A C. I can't remember who executed what deal. But what contract is that for Claxton? 
That is the most recent contract he signed. I'm pulling up the numbers now. It was two years, 17 and a quarter million. So, see, he's probably in that same boat where he's he's about to... And he is a unrestricted free agent after this season. Yeah, see, I'll bet he gets more into the... And I don't know what his numbers are in terms of what he produces, but I'll bet you he's going to expect to be in the 10 to 12 category, right? I, I would figure... I think Smith has played well. I think Jalen Smith is a pretty good player for them, to be honest with you. Like, I think he – so much of it is looking to what guys – what you expect that they're going to be as opposed to, a, you know, what they are right now. Right. You know what I mean? And what do you want him to be with that log jam at the position? Like, even if it's $8 million for the Pacers, are you going to want to pay that just because he's nice to have? Like, it's a nice safety net to have there? Or is he going to continue to be a viable part of the rotation – and win minutes. I mean, it's just all conversation that they're going to have. I would think, though, with just the intrigue of Smith, that a team might be willing to, because NBA money isn't real, throw something Indiana's way, or throw something Smith's way that Indiana might be like, okay, thanks, that's all right, Jan, we've appreciated it. Enjoy Detroit. Can you imagine going to Detroit? <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, here at the press conference, so, uh, Jake, what exactly led you to the Detroit Pistons? Well, you know, listen, I, Big I'm, Lions guy. <laughs> I'm a fan of the city. I love what Jared Goff's done with the Lions, but most notably, um, you know, I have visions and I have dreams and I don't see why we can't win nine games next year. I mean, I, you know, I mean, we're <laughs> going to, we're going to triple tough. this bad boy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, can you imagine going somewhere where they're basically, you're, you're flatlined at a zero and, and promising to people you're going to triple the output when you're playing like NBA or NFL video games oftentimes in your contract that if you want to be a coach or a manager they'll set win total goals for you do you think that's what that is if you take the pistons job right now hey eight wins next year yeah. just eight like that's we're not we're not we're not crazy here that's got to be the best job ever actually right <laughs> like there's no expectation at all hallelujah could you get us to 10 by game 80 is that possible could just, we get there i mean good lord what what are they at right now are they they're are they at five yet I mean, they were obviously stuck on two forever. Four to 39. Man. What's their current skid or streak? They, They've lost three in a row. Yeah, they're, they're one of their last nine. Good Lord, man. And I don't, the thing that just astounds me is they, they seemingly have some good players. But, man, it just does not mesh at all. They, to be honest with you, the Pistons feel kind of like they're assembled like Indiana's college team of like, hey, we've got five star college players. We're gonna you know we're gonna draft them high and just take our chances that they mesh instead of truly building like the unit of a team. By the way, I know we got to go to break, but all this changes if you're a player. To your point about going to a bad team versus a good team, or have a chance to win a ring, it all changes once you've won one. Like look at Kyle Kuzma, right? Like he won in L.A. where he was like the third, fourth option right. on that team. He gets traded to Washington. He could have left there instead of four years, 102. Yeah, exactly. To be the face of this friend. And I don't understand. Absolutely. I'll be honest with you. I don't know much about anything when it comes to the Pacers, okay? I'm saying that facetiously. But I I will tell you this. I, I Things change. I get that. But as of like two years ago, I can tell you the Pacers did not have an interest in Kyle Kuzma. I don't they blame just, them. They're, they're scouting. They did not have an interest in Kyle Kuzma. So when you hear his name, and I've heard his name still to this day mentioned, well, Kuzma would be a guy they're interested in. I, I, 
it, it cracks me up when I hear that. And maybe they do make a deal for him. I have no idea. But of all the players in the league, the only player that I ever specifically had someone say to me, you know, we looked into it and we just don't think that in this particular place that he's a fit. The only player I've ever heard that about is Kyle Kuzma, quite frankly. $25 million to Kyle Kuzma at yeah, age 32 I mean, does not sound great. He's 28 right now. It's a four-year deal he signed. I don't know if that's a team option, player option, but assuming it's all straight and narrow. He is the poster child of the Jake Quarry 2025 guy. Indeed. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day. Sorry to disappoint you, John. No scooping taking place here on a Wednesday, but we will take the Phoenix Suns on the money line over the Dallas Mavericks. Alabama hosting Auburn will take them outright on the money line as well. Another money line bet to close things out. Give me Illinois on the road against Northwestern. Eddie, you have anything today? I do, and I'm going to get judged hardcore for this. Australian Open, I am taking Sabalenka. I don't know how to say her first name. She's taking on <laughs> Coco awesome. Golf. The sentence itself is awesome. You didn't I, lose me until. <laughs> I know how to, I just know how to say her, her last name. I never hear their caller by her first name on the telecast. I always hear if Sabalenka. You can't pronounce the name. She is don't world bet on a number name two. You can't pronounce. I'm taking her two to one. Look, Eddie, I bet I've been over Coco Goss. Let me ask you something, John. Good God Almighty. Has there ever been a moment in your life, John, where there was something something that you realized you'd crossed over the line and you're like, this might be something I need to get a hold of. Wait, is, is Coco like, Golf a money line favorite? Betting on the Australian <laughs> no. Open. Okay. No, no, no. Players betting on somebody, you don't you can't pronounce that somebody's name actually. I think it's Arna Sabalenka. Yeah, I, I tell I you what, if you think it tribute. is, don't bet on it. What are you doing, dude? <laughs> Wait, am I am I getting I, plus money on Coco Golf? Is that what's happening? You know right how now? they play? Yeah, I do. You do. Oh, mm-hmm. you don't you can't pronounce the name, love, but you know how they yeah, play. I love watching the Australian Open when it comes around, yeah. You're not selling me on that, Garrison. I, it's a good thing I don't have to sell you. Mm, yeah <laughs> you're not my audience <laughs> i'd like to know right now the australian dollar what's the conversion rate right now do we know i'm looking it up so if oh, pori golf okay. if you're gonna not put coco oh wow right now the the, the u.s coco. dollar why, oh is that really why don't DraftKings label it like that we're having three different conversations. I'm sorry. Go on. What's the conversion rate? That's the important the, thing. The exchange rate right now, if you go to Australia, for every buck you have, it's worth a buck fifty in Australia. We need to go to Australia, John. I would love this time of year. Summertime down there. I, I, listen, Can you imagine? My buddy Michael, the Australian, he's he's got his condo on the Gold Coast. He gave I'm me the a, building code. He's like, I'm go getting anytime. a little movement. I'm just thinking about that right <laughs> now, man. Come on, right? Jeez. Go down the Gold there. Gold Coast? Take, I mean, you got, we'll let... Eddie blow all his money on the Australian Open. We'll just take our money down there and Eddie's, cash it Eddie's on trying the to figure out rate. if Pat Cash is playing somebody. <laughs> you know, the greatest headline in <laughs> tennis history was when Pat Cash beat Yvonne Lindell in the Wimbledon yeah. final, and the headline the next day in the paper said, Cash beats a check. That is best, awesome. Best headline ever. Best headline ever. I wonder what Pat Cash is doing now. That's when we used to watch it. I wouldn't even know what the hell's going on. It was a now. huge deal huge. back then, man. Boris Becker's diving all over the place when he's 18 years old. Boy, that was, he was a big deal. So good, man. Yep. Becker was great. I you know, who was the last when you think about John the 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 kind of that golden era of tennis? Who's the last guy that you really think of? And I know that we've had I mean, listen, right now you you've obviously got three of the best ever to play it. I get it. But in the days of like Wimbledon being appointment viewing. Oh, probably Agassi. I would say Agassi that's right. and, and maybe, maybe a French Ron- maybe a French erotic. I just think Agassi because Agassi had different chapters, right? Right. 
Correct. He, he had to have but, you know, I mean, the, 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 wig, the wig chapter the and the ball chapter. The heyday obviously would have been, you know, coming off of McEnroe Connors into yeah. Lindell, Boris Becker, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Michael Chang a little bit. I mean, that was, man, it was so much fun back then. I mean, it, it was just appointment viewing. I'm headed you know? down under with Eddie. Give me Coco Golf on the money line. I'm betting <laughs> oh, against Eddie on, in that matchup. You're on crack, man. Yeah, they're trying to Lanko figure out how to pronounce Seven Renko's name. They, they figured out they just decided to go with the monosyllabic last name, and that's the one they're going with. Uh, John, what do you got upcoming? <laughs> oh, we're going to got Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilermakers. Man, the Boilers just cruised. They did, man. And Michigan's a mess. Jawan Howard. I, I, we Yikes. were just talking about that. I'm like, what in the world has happened to Michigan, right? Right down the toilet. Phil Martelli, I think, is more the coach now than he is, though, right? That's exactly what I was saying. Phil Martelli is one of the better interviews of all time in college basketball. Did you guys ever do that on Radio Row? I don't Phil think Martelli, I ever... when he was at St. Joe's, no. what a great dude he is. I mean, yeah. he had a good run there. i tell you who wasn't a great dude. Seth Greenberg, jerk. Really? Yeah, I questioned his coaching, though, so I'm surprised he didn't punch me in the mouth. <laughs> oh, man, I love Seth. <laughs> what, how did you question it? What you I say? I said, he had a play at Virginia Tech where he didn't guard the inbounder full court. And Duke, Fair question. They, they, threw a, they threw a pass and scored, and he said, how many games have you won in college? I said, well, how many NCAA tournaments have you been to? <laughs> No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Did you say I don't I don't know, but I haven't I have lost said that any before, however. I've said that before, yeah. You know? Um true. Nah, he's not that bad of a guy, but he uh he didn't like that question. I'm trying to think on Radio Row if we ever had anybody that rubbed me the wrong way. The guy that was great was Randy Bennett. He's at St. Mary's. Yes. Great Bob guy. lived in Southport. He's had a cool dude. Robert Wool, the actor, comedian in Bull Durham, and Arliss was on Radio Row in Houston with me once was awesome. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll tell you who was a bit of a diva on Radio Row. Victor Oladipo. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. The year that he was an national I'm, player. Uh, of the year. I'm not shocked by that. I would have been when he was a freshman. He was such early in his IU career. He was such a good dude. And then obviously, yeah, yeah. Then he became the master. Fall singer. in love with yourself all over again. All right, John's up next. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back at noon tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Quarian Company.